welcome to None of My Friends Like Comics. This is a podcast where a comic book enthusiast talks to a newcomer about a piece of work in the medium, and we break it down to see if my friend, a first-time reader, will pull it or drop it. I'm your host, Nick Poffenbarger, and my co-host today is a new friend, David Neves? Yeah, that's close enough. Neves? It's Nieves, but... Nieves, like, yeah. okay, okay. That's it. I like that more. How's it going, man? <laughs> Good, man. Good. Good. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm glad to be doing this. I like I don't really have a lot of people I can talk comic books with. Like, it's funny. Um, I know a lot of people in comic books, but like, like, I, like we were talking about, like people who work in comic books don't always like talking about. comic yeah, books. Yeah, you know, and that's understandable because it's the job, you know. So, I mean, I, I totally get that. But yeah, no, well, uh, nice to be able to just dive in with a with a bud and uh, and go into a book heavy detailed. So uh, this will this will be a good time, man. Um, uh, uh, so. Um, just for context here, um, uh, we have a mutual friend in uh, Scott Livingston who was uh, on the Daredevil episode of the podcast earlier. I think it's like episode eight or something like that. And um, uh, yeah, good friend of mine. Great guy, great guy. Uh, he suggested we get in touch and uh, do an episode together. And uh, I'm stoked, man, because we're, we're talking X-Men for the first time on the show. Yeah, especially yeah. like I can't talk about Marvel things with Scott and it's so... <laughs> freaking like it's frustrating some like it's a great guy to talk about like dc stuff which i like i'll read very true very true like i have so many more marvel books that i've read and i've always tried to like tell him like oh you got to read this new x-men stuff by hickman and he's just kind of like i tried to get scott on the old hickman train he hasn't he hasn't bit yet one day we'll get him on there though i will i will for sure but yeah um, so uh yeah, be, before we uh, we dive into yeah. the X Men and all that stuff, um, uh, I, we do have a tradition on the show that uh, if it's your first time being here as a guest, uh, gotta ask about your background in comics and uh, what's your relationship with the medium. You know, wherever you want to take it, really. When when did it start for you? <laughs> oh God, uh, when when did it not? When did it uh, stop? Would be a better question. Um, yeah, man. Like my like comic books for me started. I was a kid, um, like towards the end of elementary school very first comic was like went with my mom to a grocery store in California and saw a copy of X-Men number four, the Jim Lee run. So it was like where I got into it. And I don't know, like at the time I didn't really have anything that I was into. Like, you know, I had a Nintendo that was kind of cool, but comics were like that comic, like grabbed me. And I was like, like it, it's, you know, got Gambit Jubilee and Wolverine with the Omega red tentacle. And I didn't know super rad. I didn't know what, who or what any of these characters were. And like, I remember just kind of begging her to get it. And I, and I, you know, got it. And it just looked like the coolest thing in the world to me. And it was just one of those things for me. Like I, I, I got to, how do I get more of these? I didn't know. Like I'd got this at a grocery store. Yeah. My parents didn't know. <laughs> I'd never been into comics. Like I had siblings that weren't into comics. So like, I like it was funny because uh, like two months after that, that grocery store closed down. Oh, geez. So I, like I was like, I got in this thing and it was just like the universe was like snatched away, snatched away. <laughs> like and, uh, and I would just discover like, you know, like a, a couple of months down the line, this pizza joint that uh, my family used to always take me to across the street was like a, a tiny little shop that had like Spider-Man in the window. And I was just kind of like, I just, you know, let me go there. And I was like, discovered an entire store that was just full of these books. And as funny, like as a kid, this sweet old man who ran the store uh, told me, he was like, hey, was, do you read comics? Like, I've read one. And he's kind of like, what? And I'm like, oh, it's X-Men one. And he's like, oh, it's Jim Lee. And, uh, you, you know, here, 
and he hands me uh, five and six and the covers were even more amazing. <laughs> so it's just kind of like, he's like, how did it get even cooler? It's just okay. even, like even better. And I was like, okay. Like from that point I was like, I used to like, when my parents would be like, Oh, where do you guys want to go for dinner? Like every weekend would be like, Oh, can we go to pizza? Like pizza became like a weekly thing. And I don't know how I wasn't like 300 pounds as a kid <laughs> because that was just an excuse to go over to the store across the street to go like get comic books. That's awesome. Yeah. So like from there, I just like, I, I, I collected comics and read comics through probably like, uh, probably towards the end of high school and then fell off for a little bit and then started reading again. And it was funny because it was like the return of Jim Lee that brought me back into comics when he started doing Batman and everything. That's awesome. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah. And then after that, like I would just find more ways to like um, be around comics. Like, um, like we were talking about, um, I do, I put all the programming together for Planet Comic Con Kansas City. Yeah. Our, our local convention here in town. Yeah. yeah. You know, and if this is, then you know, go this year, go next year, it's going to be good. Um, but yeah, so it was just kind of like, I found more ways to be in and around comic books, like writing about comic books for different places, these shows and meaning like now getting to like have people who write and draw comic books, like in my phone that I can like, you know, not bother, but like talk to you, uh, it's just, it's in it's, the middle of the night. No, <laughs> I, no there, there've been times, but no, it's just, it's funny. Like that's where, com where my relationship with comic books ultimately led. And it's great because there's no very few other mediums in the world that you can develop that kind of like rapport with and still consider it something that you just love and see as like a hobby. Yeah. And it, it's, it's great. Um, that just kind of made me think about how it is a medium where like, you know, so many of us have like these huge like visions of these people who like the creators and stuff. Like once you get into like a little bit of inside baseball and by a little bit of inside baseball, I mean, just like knowing the creator's names, <laughs> I guess like, you know, on the books, like, and, and you're not just reading it because it's like a Spider-Man book or something mm -hmm. like that. Like you get like these huge, like, images of these people in your head and then like you meet them and like it's like nine times out of ten like always like it's just a humble medium you know and and like and that's so that's so nice because it's like you know they're not far away and you can like meet these people who like crafted these stories that you love and stuff like that and like and it's 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 great you know it's and it's funny like when i first started reading comic books as a kid I never really like thought about like who made this. Oh yeah. I, I didn't think about that. Totally like, later. <laughs> yeah, I, You know, like it, it could have just like in my head as a kid, Oh, this was just made by one person, I guess, or something. And it was funny because like, and the, the thing I, I don't really like, I admit shamefully, like as a kid, I was so into it for the art. Oh yeah. I barely ever read the words. So like even like I think that's what draws a lot of us in, though, at first, like at the early ages. I mean, like you just you see this cool ass image and you're like, whoa, you know, like. Yeah. And so like, like, you know, I really never learned the significance of Chris Claremont till much later in my comic book days. And then, oh, man, like it's it's and just kind of like it will go back and just kind of like some of like the things that like comic books when I first started reading or objectively kind of terrible, <laughs> but, um, we all have those books, <laughs> yeah, right but like, but the pictures were so cool. 
that it makes up for it. And then there are other things that I wish I would have like really appreciated more, but I couldn't because I was a, I was a dumb kid. It was like, it, it was like kids watching Seinfeld. Like it's objectively great when you grow into it and you, you can go back and like be impressed by it. But like as a kid, comic books were just so much more about pictures to me. And it was just like, and, and really like once we start talking about the, the book, like, Oh my God, there was no better example of like, yeah, I would not have liked this as a kid. Yeah, no, we, we hit on that a little bit before we started recording. And yeah, I think uh, that's that's going to be a, a good point of conversation once we <laughs> get yeah, into this sure. a bit. But yeah, man. Um, no, that's awesome, dude. Yeah, I'm just so glad that uh, we're getting to have you on. It's like it's like having a, a real comic book uh, official over here. Like with us. So, so, but yeah, <laughs> I would say semi-official. Semi-official. Hey, hey we're, we're moving on up. That's okay. <laughs> but yeah, so so the, uh, the book we're talking about today um, uh, is a uh, critical darling. And uh, kind of a fan favorite X-Men story, God Loves, Man Kills, written by the aforementioned Chris Claremont with art by Brent Anderson, uh, colors by Steve Olaf, and um, letters by Tom Orzakowski. That is, no, that's <laughs> I think correct. that's right. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Okay. And, uh, and uh, just to, to add on, uh, edited by Louise Simonson, which is cool. Um, originally published uh, as Marvel Graphic Novel Number no. Five in December of 1982, God Loves Man Kills is kind of uh, billed as like a standalone story that, uh, I guess, the best way to describe it, I mean, it aims to explore like the prejudice that exists against mutants in the Marvel universe, but by way of like against religious fanaticism. I guess is the best way I can put it. <laughs> that's, and that's, that's such a like um, very textbook way of putting it. I mean, like in simplest terms, like if you've watched X2, the yeah, movie, you've say. read this book. Uh, yeah, essentially. yeah, it is. It is based. It is the, the, the primary basis for X2 X-Men United. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, if you've seen that movie, you'll see a lot of parallels coming in once we start breaking down the story and whatnot. Um, but yeah, um, I thought it was uh, kind of interesting with this, like, you know, I mean, I, I watched like a like a mini documentary about this book like a long time ago. And because um, this was actually the first uh, X-Men book I ever read. <laughs> Are you serious? <laughs> yeah. Like, wow. <laughs> and like and so and, and I did not get it when I, when I first got I mean, I got it, but how I was old, like, how old were you when you read this? I was a teenager. OK, Um, uh, I, I always liked the X-Men um, because like mostly because of the animated series, like when I was growing up and, and that was kind of the thing. And, and the X-Men for me, especially when I got into comics were probably like, cause I was a Marvel guy and like, uh, the X-Men seemed like the most impenetrable thing to get into at first, because it was like such a, like, I loved the characters, but it seemed like any book that I would pick up a trade of like some random thing, they were always doing some random shit that I would need a million, like, years of context for like before I could really get into it, you know? And so I purposefully kind of stayed away for a long time because like, I, I was like, I, I'm such a completionist or a mindset of like the story and like X-Men is like known for being like this giant saga Mm -hmm. that I just, I wanted to start from like at least the Claremont era stuff. And I think I picked this up mostly because, um, it was billed as like being like the basis for X2, which is a movie that I still to this day really, really like. Oh, <laughs> but, yeah. but yeah, like um, I, uh, I, I think it's interesting with this book because um, uh, you, when you get into like, you know, some of some of the inside baseball stuff on this one, um, because it was a graphic novel, it doesn't have the Comics Code Authority stuff that was still like present during this time uh, when it came out. Um, and uh, so, you know, they could kind of 
go for like a bit more of like a, a darker, I guess, realistic kind of tone in it. And, uh, they, uh, they didn't really have to pull any punches and, and Claremont certainly doesn't in this book <laughs> for sure. Um, but yeah, I mean like, uh, I don't know. I mean like, um, I guess you kind of go into like the first exposure stuff on this one. Um, I, like I said, I mean, this was the first X-Men book I ever read. Uh, and I don't think that I, I think I, I got it. I was old enough to get what he was saying, but like, I didn't really appreciate it as much because I didn't have the greater context of the other X-Men stuff. And when I went back and actually read through like the vast majority of the classic Claremont era, I was like, oh, this is the shit. <laughs> like, <laughs> like spo- Spoilers for my opinion on the book, but I, I think that this book is great, you know, and it's it's one of my favorite X-Men stories for sure. But um, I was curious, like... uh. Just because, uh, you know, I mean, you kind of went into it there a little bit, but like, um, I was going to ask if you were like kind of a Claremont guy, because, uh, you said when, when I sent you the list of possible things, you said you never read this one before. So I was like, I was like, Oh, like, you know, like, what, what, what did you have in your, uh, preconceived notions about this one? You, you know, and it was because like, yeah, yeah, yeah. When we talked about it, like X-Men was my introduction into comics, but it's the funny, the irony is like. I started with like them at a point like the Omega red thing, which yeah. is like literally right after Claremont left X-Men. I was going to say, didn't he, he left after issue he three. Right so after. you literally picked up the issue right, right after he was gone. So like, as far, <laughs> like at when I was a kid, as far back as I went with this was like picking up X-Men one, two and three. Yeah. And those were like the only Claremont books I read as, as a kid. So like, um, Inferno days of future past, all these things that were like milestones and like things that they're like, this is more the most synonymous with. I never read those. And some of those I still haven't read today. Yeah. So like when we were talking about this list, I looked at God loves man kills. Like I'd heard that phrase associated with X-Men so many times, like it got burned, it, you know, osmosis got to me. And like, when I looked at the list and I was like, yeah, I never read that. I should probably read that at some point. So I was like, yeah, it's a perfect opportunity. So like, I honestly, X-Men for me started out as this big bombastic thing that because of Jim Lee, because of like, I got into it because Wolverine looked cool. Yeah. Because Gambit looked freaking (laughs) cool. Like Cyclops, not cool, but like, um, you know, Jean Grey and all these like really, you know, it's, it's these sexy freaking drawings that were like just amazing to a kid like that's where i got into it so like when i went back and like i thought okay god love man kills sounds cool i think i'm gonna be in for a uh action-packed raucous time <laughs> like you like and you know because i read this today and not you know years ago i started by reading the original version of it yeah and like the way it starts out was just like Oh, this isn't gonna be fun at all. <laughs> like almost immediately, yes. We'll we'll get into yeah. that. It's <laughs> so like, but but yeah, yeah. Well, that's cool, man. No, I'm uh, I'm excited to get into this. Let's just uh, let's just do, let's dive yeah. on in. Yeah, yeah. let's drop on into the story section. Uh, this is where we recap the story in full to give full context for our discussion. Um, that means uh, full spoilers going ahead. You've been warned, as per usual. Um, so <laughs> what we were just talking about. This story starts in Connecticut. And uh, we start with like a pretty grim, dark scene here, uh, immediately cementing that this is uh, 
a much more graphic and heavy take on the X-Men um, than what we're used to at this time period. Uh, we see a young brother and sister running for their lives in the middle of the night and a group of men and women uh, decked out in like special ops looking outfits um, who call themselves the Purifiers uh, catch up to the siblings at a playground swing set and murders them for being mutants. Um, they, uh, it's, it, they go as far as to string up the bodies on the swing set and leave a sign attached that says Muty. Um, meant as a warning to all mutants and uh, in the area. Uh, yeah, what the fuck? You know, like, like, really, like X-Men is a thing that taught me that there were words that like that there were words that hurt people like, you know, and for, yeah, you know, just all these. And it's like the allegory of disenfranchised people in different races. Like there were just like the word, you know, that we use here is muty. Like as a kid, I didn't know like what they were trying to do with that word. So like, and you grow up and you learn like how awful their real words in the real world are. You're like, you get the association, how like powerful it was to kind of like develop your own thing for these people. Yeah. And like, and just the, in the context of like this opening scene too, like they don't shy away from like, you know, they, like they straight up show you them strung up on like a swing set. You know, I mean, like it's it's like it's some powerful, disturbing imagery right off the bat. You know, and I mean, uh, illustrated greatly by by the art team. You know, I mean, um, I, I mean, we'll go into that more in like the overall stuff at the end. But yeah. like, I, I think Anderson does a, a fantastic job. You know, I mean, on the illustrating like kind of the more like just dark nature of the story. I guess like um, it, it hits hard and. It's it's kind of amazing that like you pitch this book and you're like you're gonna start with like well we're gonna open with killing these kids in a park yeah like like, like, <laughs> like hey, these uh, little I'm kids. sorry sir this is a comic book not an Arby's <laughs> yeah man it's like uh, yeah and like so as we as we continue on with the scene at least like um uh, uh before dawn and before like anybody can really get up to see this warning that the purifiers have left uh magneto shows up and he like dismantles the display and he gives a, a great like little monologue speech here which uh, i'll just quote here real quick because it's a uh, you know I can't, I can't do it justice otherwise so um he says an execution not the first far from the last only this time the victims are children so young so innocent to know such terror and pain their only crime that they had been born and for all my vaunted power, I was unable to save them. No more shall die, but those responsible for this atrocity. Whatever the cost, however long it takes, I will hunt them down and make them pay. And yeah, I think like the fact that this is only like three pages in, I'm like quite the intro, you know? I mean, and, like, and that's such a like vaulted and beautiful way of just saying like, what the fuck? Who did this shit? Yeah. Like, I mean, like. I think this is one of the first times, at least like, cause I read this in the context of, um, I reread this when I went through the Claremont stuff for the first time mm -hmm. and I read it like when it was in publishing order, you know? And, um, as far as I can remember, like this is one of the first times we really get like Magneto was always like, you know, a, uh, a gray area kind of villain, like it, when Claremont was handling him. But like, this is like really like, this is the first time you really see that Magneto that everyone knows and likes, I think. Like, it, you know, he seems like he was just, he wasn't sure if, like, this was going to be in continuity or not yet. So, like, he was just like, he was just like, hey, fuck it. Oh, I'll make Magneto, you know, th this for for this. You know, I mean, yeah. And, like, for me, you know, having been the 90s X-Men person, like, 
Magneto was, you know, for the most part, like the antagonist of the thing. Yeah. The baddest of the bad. And like reading this, you're like, oh, God, this was Magneto's. This was Magneto's face turn. This is the I think the crowd is going to go wild for it. Yeah. (laughs) I think this is like the closest that you could see to like him possibly like have like people could see his side, I guess, like, you know, more, more clearly and, and, and equate it to Xavier's like, you know, kind of dream, at least in a, in a, in a more respectable manner. I guess, and and it's point. definitely like, if you'd never read anything X-Men from the past, it's definitely a wild, like, okay, you can't not root for the guy who's trying to avenge children. Yeah. Yeah. Nope, the, yeah. He, he just, he just like dismantled this, horrendous display you know and like and and he's and he's upset you know rightfully so as as everyone who's reading the book should be so you know but yeah so uh from here we jump and um uh, this is where we meet like our villain basically the reverend william striker um who leads an extreme religious organization called the striker crusade uh he throughout the whole book he he quotes bible verses and studies video footage of the x-men up in his office uh for at this time unknown nefarious purposes and um i do want to say real quick Striker quotes like a shit ton of Bible verses in this book. Um, I'm not going to quote each one because I feel like the reasoning is obvious if you read the book, um, like what he's applying it to, like it's, in it's the moment. It's also almost too much. Uh, like, I, I understand it, but like, it's almost too much of the Bible versing. Like, it feels like it's like half the dialogue. It, it feels like that's all this guy <laughs> can speak in. Yeah. And like, and he's constantly justifying his points by the verses. Like, and, and you can, which I, I think, um, I, I do want to point out, like I said, because I'm not going to be like quoting them as we go on, but like uh, uh, I think that the verses that Claremont picks for the most part are pretty brilliantly put in because they're ones that you can foreseeably see him like twisting like to to you know fit his agenda and like, you know, be, like it's something that I could see reasonably like somebody like this um, taking and twisting to even though they promote like, you know, genocide and violence or could use that to just justify their actions, I guess. Like um, most of the time, the quotes are pretty well picked, I think. And they're also not like the go to quotes whenever anybody that's written anything using religion as some kind of, um, you know, plot device picks like generally we they're not 100 percent like the stereotypical yes, choices. Exactly. Yeah. Which was great. Yeah, I, I really dig that. And like. So uh, from here, we uh, we jump to a familiar site for uh, this time in X-Men continuity. Uh, it's uh, Stevie Hunter's dance studio. Um, <laughs> Stevie Hunter uh, is an instructor and frequent supporting cast member for the X-Men at this time, uh, particularly because Killy, uh, Kitty, K- Killy, what the hell am I saying? I was just combining Ileana. But um, so Kitty and Ileana take lessons here. Um, and the scene we jump into, though, is a fight between Kitty, uh, Kitty Pride, who is Shadow Cat, who is known as Ariel at this. I'm just going to call her Kitty most of the time, but it's uh, yeah, that yeah. was weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was, she goes through her weird phase of uh, a ton of different like superhero names and costumes and whatnot, and like which is kind of fun when you're reading it at the time. But like going back to try to explain things to people, you're like, no, she was Ariel at this time. It's it's really, but like you know, you think about like you know the, the 90s. Even before that, pride of the X Men. Yeah. <laughs> so, and then you bust out here with Ariel. Yeah. <laughs> kind of, the, what kind of even secret identity for a superhero is also, Ariel? Uh, yeah. I also think it's very hilarious that it's like this, like persona that she's in for like this like super iconic story so like it's always going to be there <laughs> even though it's like one that everyone goes what like they're just but yeah so like basically kitty is uh is fighting with this boy named danny and uh 
she's like just beating the shit because he was talking up Stryker, who is, uh, he quotes him saying uh, he's going to, quote, save humanity from the godless hordes of mutant kind. And obviously, Kitty has a problem with this. Uh, Danny gets a punch in uh, after Kitty has him on the ground and uh, they get broken up by Peter Rasputin, a.k.a. Colossus. Um, Danny backs off and uh, he, he, but he's still like running his mouth after Kitty explains the situation to Stevie and Stevie takes it pretty light and tells Kitty that he, she's like, oh, you know, they're, they're only words and all this stuff. And uh, Kitty says probably the most controversial thing in this book. Um, uh, she compares it to if Danny said the N word instead of mutant. Um, and if uh, Stevie would still be tolerant of that. And uh, I, I feel like we just like, have to address this real quick, uh, just because it's something that like people address all the time in this book um, when they talk about it and like retrospectives and all that stuff. But like uh, this is problematic for obvious reasons um i mean but i don't think it was meant to be offensive obviously like in in the in the way of just like using the word but it's more like claremont is trying to drive like the metaphor home you know and maybe this is where tarantino got it from really yeah because like you know we take it for if it if it's in the story you're telling if it gets the point across and it's really no other way. Like we've already established that this world uses words like muty. Yeah. Like he's trying to equate it to something and that's yeah. the most powerful way to do it. I, I, I agree with that a hundred percent. I think it's just more like when people start to read it, like meta, meta textually, mm-hmm. <laughs> it becomes kind of like a gray area for a lot of people. Like just because they see it for like, I guess the face value of just using it. And I, like, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I feel like, uh, obviously, like I said, Claremont had no like ill intent in using it. He's just trying to drive home that metaphor. And, um, I agree with you saying that it's a very powerful way to do so. Um, and it's basically like, there's always going to be like a group of people who just want to take things out of context. And this is true, like- true enough. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, and, and, you know, I just, I just feel like we had to, we had to get that out of the way to, to do, because like I said, if we, if I skip over it, you know, people are going to be like, you didn't talk about that thing, you know? And it's like, you know, it's like, yeah, it's, it's an important part of the book and, uh, you know, for multiple reasons. And, um, yeah. You know, and you, at the end of the day, you have to kind of realize like he wrote the N word in a story that was dealing with how horrible these things are. Very true. Yeah. It's not like he's saying like, like you should just use that like, you yeah. know, or whatever. Like it's, it's a, it, yeah, it's definitely yeah. not. Yeah. And plus if you look at it even deeper in the context of like taking the story for what it is, like Kitty is like a brash teenager, you know, who just got into a fight, you know I mean? Like she's going to like yell stuff and, and, and whatever, you know I mean? Like, and, and, it, and, you know, like I said, in the context of the story, she's not wrong, you know? So, I mean, it's, it's uh she's more wrong for having the name Ariel. Yeah, yeah, she's yeah, that's true. And so that costume. Anybody named Ariel is just so weird because we know her as Kitty Pride. Like Kitty, Shadowcat, yeah. literally anything else. <laughs> yeah. So like anyway, uh Colossus, um, Kitty and Ileana uh go off and Stevie goes back inside and uh, we see that um outside the studio there's some purifier agents watching the situation from a nearby van. Uh we cut to the X Mansion. And uh, all the mutants, like, in this story, uh, basically sit back to watch a televised debate that's going on between Professor Xavier and Reverend Stryker. Uh, basically, Stryker, like, creams Xavier. And uh, it, because he's, like, you know, charismatic and he appeals to, like, he, the fear, like, of that people could have, you know, which is obviously, as we know, in, like, 
I, I hate to say like today's political climate, but like, I mean, it's because it, it's in any political climate from any era. But like, I mean, he's that guy who like appeals to people's fears and like and gets in and, and is just like, well, what about the people in America and all this stuff, you know, and, and, and Xavier's like trying to be like more subtly, like a, appealing to like, you know, a, a normal person's like rationale i guess and and i mean you know we use the phrase like ahead of their time like so much but the truth is is like it does kind of fit here because he's talking in the way uh people talk now like they've mastered the art of like talking to people's fear centers and they get them to think nothing else and also too i will say like i don't know if you noticed but like on the page before when they're watching the show it's abc news and this was like before marvel was bought by Disney and Disney owns ABC. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I didn't even, I didn't even make that you could, connection. You could read this like, and you're just like, you read this in like 80, you know, whatever year, it came, sorry, what, what year it came out in that didn't happen. So at the time you're just kind of like, ah, yeah, I'll like, never be what a coincidence. Yeah, what a co- yeah. coincidence. <laughs> I do think that this is like, this is kind of funny too, because, um, after the debate, uh, uh, I should say that, um, Cyclops and storm have accompanied professor X, uh, to the studio and to the debate and whatnot. So they're there, you know, just waiting backstage and whatnot. And it's really funny because Cyclops, uh, he even straight up says, he's like, we got slaughtered in that debate, you know, like he's, he knows that like, and I love this quote where he says, uh, he like verbatim, he says, he's like, he's like, you know, um, uh, he says something about striker looking like, you know, like charismatic and, and like, you know, he's like, he's like a, a people person or whatever. And he says, Charles looks grim and foreboding, almost scary. He ended up making strikers case for him, which is just a way of saying Xavier looks really weird and scary, which is funny. <laughs> but, like, um, but yeah, I mean, like it, it, it I think that, um, it, to me that like reminds me of, uh, I mean, like we say, we can compare it to like, you know, politicians of today in a certain way but i'm uh i i think that claremont would probably be like referencing something like uh like the nixon jfk like debate back in the day when like uh they always say like the people who watched it on tv said that clearly jfk won but anybody listening on the radio without the visual said nixon creamed him you know like and it's just like that kind of you know i mean it makes sense like you know the the charisma like leads over logic a lot of the time unfortunately like in in aspects of those debates and it's really like one of the first things that i remember reading about the x-men that didn't show xavier as like the you know basically the guy who comes out looking better in these debates you know whenever in the comic books after claremont whatever you know he's the guy given the the speech the big moral speech that gets everybody's heartstrings going and here was the first time that i remember like looking at it and yeah, like seeing Xavier just come out, you know, defeated at the other end. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting take because it's like even if someone with like the greatest ideas, like, you know, can present them in a great way, like there's still going to be people who don't want to want to take that side. So, but yeah, so Cyclops, Storm and Xavier, they, they head out and it's revealed that uh, the woman from the beginning, whose name is Anne the one who killed the kids uh, is talking with Stryker about following the three out. And Stryker also mentions that they have uh size screens that prevented Xavier from reading their minds. And I just thought that was funny. Cause you know, you got to cover that plot base. Um, but uh, to, to make this plot work, but um, you know, it works cause they, they have like machines and shit later that they use. So obviously the Stryker crusade has a lot of resources. It looks like, um, but yeah, so like back at the mansion, the uh, frustrated X-Men, they blow off some steam in the danger room. And you got Nightcrawler, Wolverine, Kitty, and Colossus doing stuff. Uh, 
gotta have a training sequence in the danger room. It's classic X-Men. And, uh, it's kind of cool because, uh, the stuff that they do here kind of, uh, comes back in the climax of the story. You know, they're talking about like overloading, like one problem in two ways and whatnot. So, so like, I'm, you know, and I, I'm a, I'm a details person to an annoying extent. So yeah. like, if you, like, if I'm watching a movie and there's a tea pot on a stove, like I'm asking like, what kind of tea is in that kettle? Yeah. So like on the page before, when they're getting dressed to go into the danger room, like Colossus, like clearly looks like he has pants on. And then like under, over the, like under those boots. And then when they're in the danger room, he's got the metal over his thighs. And I'm yeah. Like, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. No, no, no. Logistically, <laughs> like, no, he can't grow the metal over his pants. What's going on there? Doesn't make sense. Maybe that's a secondary mutation. It might be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So like, there we go to Cyclops, Storm and Xavier as they drive home and they're totally ambushed and seemingly killed, which uh, leads to one of the saddest sequences in which Nightcrawler answers the phone at the mansion to discover the news. And um, this is where I, I got to point out Brent Anderson's art one more time, um, because uh, those two panels of Nightcrawler, like I, it, the, I love that depiction in the first one of like the sly, confident Nightcrawler as he answers the phone and then turning immediately like you feel that like sad, hopeless shock, like really well. Like, you know, it, it's, it's those, those panels are always like amazing to me. Yeah. And I'm just a huge nightcrawler guy. So like, I, I'll point out every moment he's no, in the like, story, I, I, to <laughs> I, I totally understand. <laughs> and like, I, you know, there are a lot of artists who can draw a lot of things in action so well, but there's very few artists that can draw like the nuance of emotion that are needed in scenes like that. Yeah. And I just feel like that is like a, that's a great example. Like, especially for some like demon looking guy, yeah. <laughs> like, you know, like to, to get that across is, is great. Um, yeah. So, you know, supposedly like Cyclops storm and Xavier were killed um, in an ambush on their car. So we cut to the next day in which, uh, Ileana is trying to comfort a distraught kitty as she kind of like sits outside on the grounds. And, um, I love the moment where kitty is like, you know, angry and like, and, and she's frustrated and, um, she yells at her like, like rejecting like you know because Ileana's like do you want some company and she's like no and um but once Ileana opens up and she says uh they were my friends too like they embrace and they cry together and it's like uh that's that's just a, a really touching moment there um you know so they they reconcile a bit after you know the argument and um Ileana tells Kitty that uh she actually came to tell her something that she found on uh, a ridge outside the mansion Kitty goes to look and sees that it's a, they call it an electronic sensor module. Um, so <laughs> it, it, it looks like an old Nintendo robot. It does. Yeah. It's yeah. it. I, when I first read this, I think I thought it was like a sniper's nest or something <laughs> like, I, I was like, I was like, wait, no, that's just like some weird stick thing. I don't know. But, um, basically like she, she phases through it, um, to break it because, you know, when she phases it, it, it you know, interferes with technology. So like, um, their plan is, you know, she breaks it. So they're going to like wait and see who comes to repair it to see like, you know, what's, what's going on here. Um, next we get a scene in which, uh, Wolverine Colossus are investigating the crime scene where the accident supposedly happened. And, um, Wolverine points out that the scents are all wrong and somebody like staged this because yes, three bodies were found, but, uh, and they were burned beyond recognition, but they were not their friends who they say were dead. So, um, I really, the nose, the nose knows. Yeah. The nose knows. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I love where Colossus uh, questions him and Wolverine replies. He has staged a few quote accidents in his day. And you're like, he's so fucking dark. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, like meanwhile, um, outside the perimeter, um, where they uh, parked the car, like when they were going to go see like the accident site, um, Nightcrawler radios in to tell them that uh, two mysterious people followed them 
uh, like in another car, like to the location and they're just like waiting there. So what follows is like a fight scene. And, uh, there's a lot of great moments here. I'll just kind of like pinpoint them here, but a uh, nightcrawler hanging down the windshield of the car saying boo is one of my favorites. Um, Wolverine rips a door off and just grabs a guy out, like throws him. And uh, Colossus uh, smashes smashes the car like as it starts to go um, in like a cool transformation sequence. That's like one of the the better um, in this book, at least like just the the turning on his powers type moment. You know, it's a very like. Did you ever um, did you ever play that uh, X Men arcade game in the nineties? Yeah, like this Colossus scene is very much like that arcade game where he's literally just like his. Basically, he did like the dash move to the side. Yeah, like his, his power is just like, let me turn to steel and whatever happens around me is going to happen. <laughs> yeah, I, I really, really speak to that moment, too. I really love because after Colossus like rams into the car, like just totaling it, he he actually like goes through it and like is just holding the engine. Mm-hmm. And I really, really love that panel where of Colossus just smiling at how strong he is after <laughs> after he smashes through the car. He's just a good guy. They're all like, <laughs> you know, for for like the emotion of the Nightcrawler phone scene later on, they all get like the weirdest smiles. Like when like when Wolverine is talking about how oh, these aren't these aren't, you know, Cyclops and Storm. Like he's smiling really weirdly he, during that moment. He has like a really sinister smile when um when Nightcrawler tells him that someone followed them. Yeah. Cause then he's like, he's like, let's spring the trap or whatever he said. I forget the exact line, but um, but he's he's like, he's like, let's uh, you know, basically he's like, let's go fuck him up, you know, or whatever. <laughs> and like, but uh but yeah, like uh but yeah, he's he's like he's like really ready to fight, you know. And I mean, I guess like it, if I wanted to like read into it like from like just the the characters perspectives is like they're pissed you know i mean like they're like friends and stuff are supposedly killed they're, they're and they know someone's killed. fucking with them and they know like yeah and they know someone's messing with them but yet like they have like the silver age batman grin on their face at times yeah yeah silver age Bat- that's a good comparison there yeah no <laughs> so like um it turns out like, uh, you know, after after this whole thing, you know, they, they think that they've got the upper hand, but like uh, there were more people in the car and they're in like these high tech battle suits and uh, they're purifiers. But like um, they quickly actually take down Colossus. Uh, but before they can finish their threats, Magneto shows up and just immobilizes them. And it's a pretty cool little scene of like his powers because he he like just takes all the metal off the suits and like wraps the dudes up like in a metal like cocoons like with just their faces showing. And uh, I love that line at the like the end of the scene basically is, you know, they're all like, it's you. And like it turns and it's Magneto. And uh, he says, she's your claws, Wolverine. Magneto is here as a friend. And if you'll have me an ally. And you notice like <laughs> almost I, I don't remember if it's like the entire book, but like. So far, like we've never had one panel of Magneto with his helmet on. Yeah, we we only get it at the end when yeah, he confronts right. Stryker, yeah, and, yeah, and it's almost and it's almost immediately knocked off too. Yeah, and and I, I know we'll get to that point, but like up until this point, it also like was the first thing that stood out to me was like this Magneto isn't like old man had an exercise bike for his entire life. Yeah, like, he's like just an average old looking dude body type. Yeah. And he's not like crazy ripped like he usually is. Like, you know, like that's not like the even like Wolverine, though, too. Like all of them in this are like a bit more. I think maybe that adds to like the the quote unquote realism. realism Yeah. Yeah, That that they're more they're honestly they're more humanized in the art in this. Like, you know, you can practically see Magneto's got like like his clothes were too big for him at one point. Yeah. And it's actually kind of refreshing. Yeah. It's nice to see stuff like this every now and then. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, like 
I don't know if I could take Anderson doing X-Men all the time because I just feel like it would, even if it was like a happy story, oh, it'd, be, it'd be depressing. <laughs> but, like, but yeah, so like, uh, and we cut back to Kitty and uh, the evil Anne, which I, which I love saying, cause like that's her super villain name, <laughs> but, but uh, accompanied by a few other purifiers come to fix the module and uh, Kitty really dumbly actually leaves Ileana <laughs> to like scout, like she like goes into the ground and uh, wants to like go see like what's going on with like their cars or whatever. And uh, they end up capturing Ileana, uh, shooting her with like a stun gun. And Kitty actually phases to sneak into the trunk of their car, but they conveniently have like a sensor that detects her. And uh, they, uh, this is so funny, they, they unleash a nerve gas to contain trunk, her, yes. to contain her as they drive off. Which is the weirdest car feature I've ever heard of. I mean, but we'll say maybe for a supervillain, not so much. Eighties, I, I think it's probably typical of Chevys. I guess. Chevy, yeah. <laughs> you know, Chevy probably wanted you nerve they, they gas. Selling, they were selling, they, you know, they were selling cars to the mob, so you yeah, know, they had to put in all those features. <laughs> but like, also, like the weird part is like, you know, how, when uh, when Anne shoots uh, Ileana, like it's made to look like she actually killed it's a, her because it's a gun. Yeah, like that is drawn as a gun it, there's nothing indicating that it was like a stun or a dart or anything like it's a shot fired out of a gun so as like a new reader like you're reading this for the first time you're you're in that shock of like did she just kill another kid i wish i could like remember my exact reaction to every point in this book like when i first read it because i would just be thinking like oh people are dying like every other page mm-hmm. <laughs> but like, <laughs> like who wrote this dance slot yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like the, the others like arrive back at the mansion with the purifiers that they captured in like the metal cocoons and uh, they try to interrogate them, but they get nowhere. And Wolverine does the old uh, one, two, three claw trick, uh, you know, which which we saw in which the, the always, first X-Men film <laughs> that never gets old. Honestly. It never does. It I, never I love does. it. Yeah, I love it. I love that. He's just like, well, you, I can want to go for three. And, you know, it's like it's so, so good. And like I will say too, th- this depiction of him doing that is probably my favorite because he's like pressing up against the dude's chin. Like, and you can see like the, the tension, like, you know, of him, like, just like, he's like, I'm going to murder this man. <laughs> you know, like it's, it feels, it feels really threatening. And, uh, um, you know, Wolverine tries to, tries to intimidate him, but it's actually Magneto, uh, who, who stops him. And Magneto does like some crazy metal swirling shit that scares the hell out of the guys into telling the X-Men basically just everything. Like yeah, the like, plan. <laughs> it's, it's cr- like, I, I understand if like this, if this old dude in a weird costume had me suspended in the air and all this stuff swirling metal me, everywhere, yeah, I'd yeah. tell him anything he wants to know. But like when, when like it's drawn here, it almost looks like he's about to like, shove the metal down his throat it's so freaking yeah like i i i because they they cut the um dialogue at that point and it just goes to the uh the omniscient narrator basically and he and he says like it didn't take long like you know or whatever it was never in doubt that we would get the information but like uh yeah i, I would almost start to see just like magneto just being like i'm going to put this metal down your th- <laughs> i'm going to, <laughs> i'm going to put the metal inside of you like or whatever you know like uh but yeah so they they learn Stryker's goal at this point, which is, you know, I mean, fairly obvious to us. It's that he's uh, he wants to eradicate mutant kind and they're going to use Xavier, though, to accomplish it. Uh, so the next like chapter begins with the crazy sequence in which uh, Charles is seeing himself crucified and bitten by like vampire versions of like all the X-Men and his students. Uh and like a pure, you know, after he gets like bit by them and he's like in agonizing pain, like a pure like white figure comes and holds a hand out to him 
but Charles is inflicted with doubt and falls back into like they refer to it as he falls back into the abyss. Like, you know, it's like he's he sees some hope, but he he doubts himself and, and doesn't. And um, yeah, man, I do, before we move on to like what this is the, like the, this the, scene, the, the, <laughs> like the, the, the crucifying, I will say, was done incorrectly. Like it was a perfect opportunity for them to put him on an X and they, true, and, yeah. like, and I get the st- sticking to the the Bible, the religious uh, aspect aspect yeah. of it, but it was just so like, I it, it it doesn't like mean we're only really like told that he is kind of like the Messiah of mutant kind. There's nothing that really like shows it to you, like really like if you're just reading this for the first time, you don't know these characters. This is just the guy who opened a halfway house for weird people. Yeah, true enough. True enough. Yeah. yeah. So, so I think it, it's yeah. it's funny how like um, we talked about it in like kind of the, the fact stuff like that, you know, Claremont didn't know if this was going to be in continuity, but it's like he clearly wrote it like assuming that, you know, what he's written before. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you know, I like and it, it's a uh, yeah, there's there's a weird line there. I mean, like it, I, I feel like um you would have to be familiar, maybe not with like X-Men, like, because like I said, this was the first X-Men book I ever read. And the only context I had was the animated series and the movies that were out at the time. And like, I think if you know who the characters are, you, you get it. But yeah, if you have no idea, like you're just like, what? I don't understand. You know? like, <laughs> like, like up until this point, this was a guy who lost a debate and got kidnapped. You know, he's got, yeah, he's got a team. He's open this like, you know, it, it briefly touches on like, oh, he opens a school and for people who are different and it's fine. But you don't really get like the, the messianess of Charles Xavier at this point. And to and to be honest, like you don't get that a lot in this story no. at all. Um, It's it, spoilers, but it's much more of a like it ends up being much more of like a Cyclops centric story mm-hmm. at the end, at least like who in terms of uh, who kind of takes the reins. Um, yeah. Right. Because at the end, doesn't he like admit how much like he's failed and then Cyclops takes it? Yeah, yeah. Which in a great scene, actually, like I'm, I'm a big Cyclops fan here. So I'm, <laughs> but I'm like, sorry. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so like, um, yeah, I know it, it's it, Xavier is definitely like a, a total like, c-tier player in this Mm -hmm. book which is which is an interesting choice it's it's kind of actually refreshing in the grand context of like if you already know the x-men but i agree if it's uh if you don't know the x-men it's kind of weird kind of weird yeah yeah (laughs) why would we name our team after this guy yeah sucks you're like like he doesn't do anything (laughs) so but yeah so like we we cut out of like this you know crazy vampire crucifix scene and uh see that charles is in like this sensory deprivation tank and uh striker and like his uh, goons and this doctor are performing uh, experiments on him to like brainwash and control him uh they also reveal that they have cyclops and storm in like these torture chairs that like nullify their powers as well as uh they psychically link them to xavier so when they're like tortured xavier feels it but it's extra messed up because like <laughs> he in the state that xavier's in he's confused so like he's led to believe that they are hurting him on purpose, even though they're being hurt and it just happens to cyclically be connected to him. And it's like, that's so diabolical. (laughs) I was like, I was like, they might as well have just been like, just been like, and it messes up his taxes, you know, like it's like, like just everything. Like that's the most crazy convoluted torture scheme. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a weird voodoo doll. Like, yeah, you know, like, 
uh, Bart and Lisa moment. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Like it, it's just, it's so weird, but uh, like, I will say though, like I didn't, in those, in those like charcoal, uh, painting sections that they're, they're talking about all this. It is gorgeous. Yeah. But like the concept of everything is just so freaking weird. Yeah. Yeah. Especially since it's like, it's like the beginning. Cause this book is split into four chapters yeah. and like, it's just the beginning of a chapter and you're like, you don't really see anything like this again. There is a scene where he kind of, he experiences something like this again, but not to like this extent. Um, you just kind of see him later, uh, accepting like, you know, the being who turns out to be, you know, striker saying that like he has like the word of God and like, do you believe and do you accept me and all this stuff? But, um, yeah, it's a, just like weird horror fantasy scene in this random book, but you know, another right drawn beautifully though. Um, so like Scott and Aurora, like basically start like, you know, talking trash to striker to give him a chance to monologue his backstory. And, um, uh, it's, it's told in like, this i think it's a pretty great flashback sequence at least like the pages like that it's in um uh, so like he uh we get the 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 backstory of striker here so he was a, he was a military guy and um you know he was on leave and uh, he took his pregnant wife on a trip to see like some family and uh, they end up getting in a car wreck and um she went into labor and the baby came out a mutant we don't see the baby or anything like that um, but he says like, you know, in his, uh, description that it was like, it was a horror, you know, and all this stuff. And so, uh, he, he murders the baby and then cradles his wife and breaks her neck. Like, you know, cause he like, can't live with it. And, um, he's prepared to like, let himself die in like the oncoming explosion of like the car. Um, but he's like blown away and survives like, and some people find him. So like, you know, he, he's like, obviously like, it's so messed up because he has like this, like, uh, this, this angle of like, he, he looked at it from like, Oh, the Lord has spared me so I can. Yeah. That's, that's where he ends up. But like, I was even referring to like directly after that, it's like the army, like his job lets him like take time, you know? And they're like, they're like, obviously you went through some traumatic experience and he just kind of utilizes that mm -hmm. and doesn't like do his job or do the work or whatever. And eventually they do let him go. Like, you know, so it's like, and then he sees, um, he actually sees Xavier like on TV one day advocating for mutants and realizes that's what the, the child was, was a mutant. And, um, he, that's when he takes it as like, he justifies it as him being like chosen to fight the evil abomination that is mutant like, kind. Like I found like, that so like, I mean, it, it's a weird choice because like, he did not know what the child was when it was born. Like he never thought like, let me take it to a hospital and see like, if this is some kind of medical condition, like, can we treat this with antibiotics? Like, I'm just imagining it came out like the, the baby in men in black. It's just like tentacle monster or something. Yeah. I don't know. Like it's like, cause we it, never, cause we never see it. Yeah. We never see it. It's like, really like, and you know, in comics, that's the first time I, read this sequence but it definitely wasn't the first time that kind of overreaction had been portrayed i mean batman returns they put the uh oswald cobblepot in the in the basket down the river yeah that's that kind of overreaction like in these kind of stories is so like i i know there was a point where it was like a, a new thing and it was shocking but you know the more stories started using it the more it kind of just went into like you're just okay wow that's an overreaction yeah 
It's it's a it's, it became a trope yeah. at that point. Um, I I agree. I think that too. Um, I would have liked to. I and what I meant by how great the flashback sequence is, is I just really love the art. <laughs> and it, not um, the baby uh, killing. Yeah, yeah I mean, like, um, does not condone. It, no, yeah. it does. It does not. But uh, but I will say, um, I wish that we got a little bit more fleshing out of Stryker's character of like the, the his his descent. But at the same time, it's a 64 page graphic novel and we got to move on, you know? So, I mean, I, I understand that. Um, and yeah. I, th- I feel like it does a, a, a pretty good job. Like, it's like, I don't, I don't need more of Stryker. I just feel like it would have been interesting to see a little bit more. You know, I, yeah, it would have been interesting, but at the same time too, from that opening sequence of like killing those kids yeah you don't need any more reason to dislike this person like, i, I, I don't, feel like it's i don't like, need to know his entire backstory it's, it's true fine. enough it's, it's fine that it like here it or for the most part organically came to pass but at the same time too like since page three like i wanted them to get this guy oh yeah i mean like i don't i don't need justification or or any uh i don't i don't need any um like you know, re- it's possible redemptive quality about Striker. I just, uh, I just feel like it's like you know, it's like two pages, and you're like, you're like, hey, kill baby, kill wife. All right, we're good. Yeah, <laughs> you know, <it>. whatever. <laughs> but like, but yeah. So like, um, at this point, you know, after telling them this, like, uh, Striker, he he speaks with Scott and Aurora some more, and uh, claiming he he has a line in particular that uh, claims Xavier to be the Antichrist, and I was like, I mean, that's. <laughs> pretty cool <laughs> but whatever <laughs> like but he gets a call from the evil Anne. you know um it, it tells her to dispose of kitty and uh then put scott nororo uh back into torture and uh and then you know after revealing his nefarious plot um Anne and her goons uh <laughs> have sensors that say that kitty's still in the trunk so they just like shoot it up <laughs> Like, which I think is funny because it's their car, but like, uh, but surprise, surprise, she phased out, but she was mildly affected by the nerve gas, um, like before she started phasing in the trunk, I guess. So like, she's kind of out of it, you know, and, um, she wanders into this alley where like some street gang like gives her trouble and, uh, and like follows her in there and, uh, ends up like having a confrontation with the gang and she like kills them all and, uh, but also gets wounded herself. Um, Kitty escapes ends up getting to a payphone, calls the mansion, reaching Nightcrawler, and uh, she gets out where she is, but the phone booth is uh, then, like, immediately blown up by the purifiers in the in the uh, mech suit things. And um, she phases and runs for the subway where she encounters a policeman on the train, and uh, he says he'll help, but um, is then shot by one of the pursuing purifiers. Uh, and Kitty, like... She's tired, and, uh, and but she also like says like you know she she won't leave like the wounded officer who like tried to help her you know, and uh, is prepared to meet her fate until Magneto shows up and just lifts the entire train up and takes all of their weapons, and uh, the rest of the X Men just fuck up the purifiers real bad. And uh, Colossus gets a great line where he says, uh, "You purifiers seem most formidable against those who cannot fight back," which I think is cool. <laughs> It's, yeah, the, like the, the, the whole sequence is great. And it really also kind of is another trope that the X-Men would do a lot is like showing that, you know, yeah, they have to paint this entire world that fears and hates them for the sake of doing these stories. But there's always like they always glimpse that like one part of humanity that's always willing to help. Yeah. Uh, no matter what the situation or no matter what the other person is which funny enough ends up being like the the 
logical or voices of reason in this story on on humanity's side actually end up being like a couple of policemen and a senator <laughs> later on in the story, which I find really interesting. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, uh, but it's but it is uh, it's it's kind of a, a little glimmer of hope in in those uh, in those moments, which is nice. Um, uh, so like Magneto um, actually pulls the bullet from the officer, and they leave the purifiers for you know the police to come get. Um, escaping on like a metal magic carpet that the that Magneto makes. Yeah, we, we like, and we talk about like how like you know the realism and in, in the art and depicting of the the bodies, but also to like there isn't this magical thing that Magneto can do with all his powers. Like like in uh in the nineties uh X Men number one, like when Gambit throws the cards at Magneto, and Magneto just waves them off like. How do his powers do that? That's, yeah. Yeah. Or like whenever he, whenever like, he has, I felt the iron in the elements of whenever, the I, whenever I had, to, whenever I had to fly anywhere, I always, I, everybody come in this bubble. Yeah. It. But here it's like, yeah, no, I need to get you guys somewhere. There's some metal over there. There's, There's some, some metal over there. Uh, you know, get, get some leather, pull, pull it up. We'll, we'll make some yeah. chairs. We'll, we'll make it work. But yeah. Like, uh, back with Xavier, um, this is the scene we were talking about earlier where the, the brainwashing seems to finally work. Um, Stryker like waxes, you know, religious poetic at him and asking him like if he believes and Xavier says he does and um, Stryker like provokes him and tells him to prove it. And uh, he psychically attacks uh, Cyclops and Storm, uh, leaving no vital signs left in them, supposedly killing them. And uh, at this point, like we see the doctor who was helping Stryker like perform these experiments and stuff. Um his name's Philip, uh, but he's uh, his name doesn't yeah it doesn't it does not matter. I, I had to like re I was like what the fuck is his name? <laughs> so, like, but um, uh, like he's being driven ho- driven home in like a limo, and uh, Kitty phases in and like silently pulls him out of the vehicle. And uh, this is the first time in in comics that uh, that she uh, she phased with another person, and not just like an object. Yeah, which is interesting. She mentions that too, <laughs> but like uh, and um. Uh, but yeah, she pulls him out into like this uh, alley and uh, where Nightcrawler is waiting to interrogate him. And I love seeing Nightcrawler anytime that he gets to play bad cop because it's just so like not him. <laughs> and you could tell he's just having fun. I th- and I think that's like kind of like the, the beauty of the character in general, because like he looks he looks the bad cop all the time. But like his soul and like how he speaks and his actions are are the exact opposite of what he looks like. The way he speaks in this scene too is so funny because it's like, it's totally like he's just, he's just pretending he's in a movie. Like he, he says that line that uh, he says, um, Oh, we have ways of making you talk, but many more ways of making you die. Bond. <laughs> yep. yep. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's so good. But yeah. We then cut back to uh, the striker building um, where the, the evil Anne is a, uh, taking Ileana in and uh, they're joined on the elevator by uh, the men who are disposing of Scott and Aurora's bodies. Um, however, the elevator begins to rise instead of drop and Anne's gun magnetizes to the wall and Magino just straight up hijacks the elevator, taking it uh, away from the building and Anne jumps out uh, landing on top of the striker building, um, you know, escaping basically um, at the X-Men like tie the men up cause they, he just like makes it land on top of whatever building they're on top of. And, um, uh, they see the state of Scott and Roro and shockingly, uh, Wolverine's like, they're alive though. You know, he, and, and he could be, he's like a jolt of electricity should do it or whatever, you know? And, uh, and, uh, Magneto's like, oh, all right. Like he, he obliges and, uh, we get Cyclops and Storm back in the story basically at this point. And, uh, uh, 
they they explain it they kind of hand wave it away here but um they it's explained by saying like charles on some like super subconscious level couldn't actually kill these people like you know so it, it, it like they're like oh it you know his, his love was too great or whatever i, I, I don't know I, i'm totally fine with all that i'm to- the thing that i i took an issue with was like having it explained here so like yeah, 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 it's it's hand wavy. Hand like, wavy. Yeah. yeah, like like how did they know he could do that? You know, like yeah, up to, up until this point. And plus, at this point, this is the second time that we've thought Scott and Aurora were dead. This is the second time we've thought like anybody. Was, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and like, and you're just like, God damn it, just just get them in the story, okay, <laughs> whatever. But but yeah, so like, obviously, like Cyclops, you know, upon them all waking up, Cyclops is concerned that Magneto is just there. You know, he's just like, what the hell, you know, and uh, they have a great exchange of like ideals uh, before like agreeing to do something about Stryker. Basically, they're like, we got a common enemy type thing, you know, which is basically what Magneto has been saying the whole book. Um, But there's so much good stuff in this conversation between Scott and Magneto. And I really love it. Like Magneto is talking about like uh, how he's lived under a dictatorship before and um, uh, how like, you know, he's like, he's like, my ways would be you know, for the betterment of all. And Scott rebutes like, you know, with how he's like, he's like, I think he says like anybody can create a utopia, but the trick is like making it actually last, you know, past like a generation because, Mm -hmm. and uh, I think that's just a really interesting sentiment because, you know, as we know, as like, Longtime X-Men readers, they have tried to <laughs> create a utopia many a time. It's been like four or five <laughs> yeah. utopias across the X-Men universe. It, that exactly. Now, I will say, though, like in the sequence when um, when they bring Scott and Storm back, visually, it's really the first time I made that connection of like, wow, like I can see what Brian Singer was looking at when he cast Magneto, like like yeah. the guy who is giving the speech the way he the way it's drawn with the acting and emotion like wow like i can see that like he probably looked at it and was like yeah that's ian mckellen it does feel like a lot like yeah. that I, I i completely agree i mean um uh, a lot of the dna for those first couple x-men movies is definitely rooted in this mm-hmm. like this particular book you know um which you know i i think was definitely for the better i mean those are those are my favorite of the x-men films oh, totally. <laughs> but like uh but yeah i mean it's uh, there's some just some real good stuff in this moment and like um i really love um you know like i said we won't go through like every single line and break it down but like uh i really loved how magneto kind of caps it off with how you know because he's talking about like how like you know i'm not that bad you know it's like i i would do this this way and it would be great and all this stuff and uh, scott's like you know you're fucking full of it, you know, whatever, <laughs> basically. And like, uh, um, but then Magneto kind of shocks them all. Like, and it ends it with saying that, like, you know, cause Scott brings up the whole thing about like, a, you know, the trick is making it last a generation. And, and he's like, why do you think that I want to work with you? Like he wants the X-Men to be the ones who like lead the next charge and the next generation. Like, and, and that's like, that's a crazy new development for Magneto at this time. Like, you know, <laughs> like it's just like, he's like, he's like, I know that we've been enemies this whole time, but you're my people, you know? And like, and I want you to be the ones who like do this. Like, you and, know, and then doesn't like after this book, when it was first released, lead into the, or around this time was when Magneto in continuity was at Xavier's school. Right. Like he, we, he ends up, I think it's like right after this, yeah. like uh, he ends up, he ends up kind of being a, an X-Men member almost, or like a leader basically. Um, yeah. 
it's good stuff. Just a lot of good stuff to chew on on that scene. But yeah, like uh, the uh, now we're, we've reached the uh, the fourth and final chapter um, of the book, uh, and um, we get context from like a, a news reporter, uh, just like an overdub of like you know uh, sound bites basically of uh, saying that Stryker's holding this big sermon at Madison Square Garden. Uh, he's invited like every major national political figure and uh, most of whom who have agreed to attend to attend. Excuse me. Um, we meet up with Stryker backstage who is explaining to Xavier that uh, he will connect with like their machine that they have that's modeled after Cerebro. So this is so f- X2, but <laughs> like <laughs> it's the most the most blatant like they took this from <laughs> yeah. like, you know, but of, uh, it basically he will you could it, X2 people like to say like they're like. Oh, it's it's based on God loves man kills in name only, and and it like you know, Striker's completely different. And I'm like, okay, first of all, like the, the people always pointed out, like in all those like clickbaity articles, like you know, ten things you didn't know about X two or whatever. Like they're always like, there's like Striker's actually like you know a televangelist, like you know, <laughs> or whatever. And I'm like, he was a military guy. They took that from the book too. Yeah, <laughs> like you he, know, he, I mean, he, like, was a, he was a military guy like, in the book, but he wasn't a military guy. During the story, I guess. Well, like, dur- you know. During his like ultimate plan. Yeah. Like in in the movie. And he's not associated with Weapon X. Yeah, they did. They did, yeah. They did put that in as well. But like, this is pretty goddamn close. No, <laughs> I mean, like, like it, it is. Like, uh, it is like when we talk about like, oh, this movie and this movie are the same. Like you pu- you put all the uh, plot points together. It is. It's a parallel movie. Yeah. I I just think it's weird that like people are always like, uh, it's God loves man kills in name only. And I'm like, dude, there's a lot of stuff that they take directly from this. <laughs> like and most of those just, people are people that are like, Oh, well the comic books are always going to be better. And I'm like, like, I mean, yeah, I mean, I agree. I do like this more than the movie I will say, but like I, uh, it's, it's just one of those things where I'm like, this is the most so blatant right here. It's like, I don't know how you could say like it, they just took like, you know, certain elements or whatever. And I personally like, like don't care because the movie is a movie. The comic books are comic books. Neither. Really. They're both always going to be there. Yeah. They're both <laughs> always there and they're both like great. And honestly, like I would not have had any interest in reading this if I had never watched X2. True. Yeah. I mean, it did get, it did get a huge push after that movie came out. Yeah. I mean, I'm pretty sure that's the whole reason I read it. So like, but yeah, like, um, so, you know, it, yeah. So, you know, you got Cerebro machine and he's going to make contact with every mutant and destroy them. So, yeah, X2 plot. Um, Evil Ann comes in to warn Striker of the X-Men, but he's not scared. And uh, he he has a line that, that I think is very uh, character defining here where he says, uh, there are a handful of children, Ann, and I am a servant of the Lord. What can they do to stop me? Like, he's so confident. And I'm like. I I also love how like the first thing he says to her, this is just more of a funny thing, but like when she comes in, he just says, and you look dreadful. Like he just <laughs> insults her right off the bat. <laughs> like after she was just like jumping off an elevator and shit, he's just like, you look terrible. Anne. She got her ass yeah. like, handed to her by the X-Men <laughs> yeah. and she's supposed to come in presentable. On, well, like this is the eighties. So there's still a lot of that. Like a lot of the uh, residue of the seventies, you know, if your secretary comes in, she's got to look presentable. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, as a striker at this point, he takes the stage at Madison square garden and, um, he starts like his, his fear mongering and the crowd is like just eating it up. And even like the, a lot of the political figures, we, we keep cutting, we cut to this uh, one Senator a couple of times. Who's kind of a voice of reason, but, um, uh, you know, the political figures still think that like he deserves to be heard, even if his messages are extreme. And uh, there are some cops like doing crowd control 
that seem kind of like bothered by his message. You know, they're like, they're like, oh, this guy seems dangerous. And um, meanwhile, the the X-Men are just kind of like waiting outside <laughs> on like another building. And um, Xavier begins his connection to the machine and Nightcrawler is the first of them to feel it. I mean, he's, his ear starts bleeding and uh, they are unsure like what to do because well, I think it's Wolverine who even says like if they attack they're proving striker right. And like, there's all these cameras, like the world will see like just the mutants attacking this guy, you know, stating his opinion is how they would spin it. So Magneto, however, doesn't give a shit about that. And he rips the roof off of Madison square garden and just puts it back and just yells striker. Like this is the moment where he has the helmet on too. And, um, I love this Bible quote in particular, like I said, I'm not going to quote it, but like, it's a, it's great because, um, he starts quoting about, uh, the goat with the two horns at this moment and all this stuff. And it's like, Oh, the Magneto's helmet with the horns and stuff. And, uh, um, yeah, like comparing Magneto to like the biblical beast basically, which, um, uh, I think it's also great that like there's another kind of funny, uh, expository dialogue moment here, but, um, uh, I think it's great that one of the senators refuses to leave after one of his assistants is like, we have to get out of here. Like a dude just ripped the roof off, you know? And like, and, um, and he says, striker's message is the real danger because Magneto put the roof back. Good as new. Like, which is such a great detail. They're like, no, it's fine. Like, yeah, he ripped the fucking roof off of this place with like no effort. And he's like flying in and yelling, but it's like, no, but he put the roof back. It's fine. He opened the door and he closed it on his way in. What's the problem? I wish all my guests did that. That's the most insane. Like, I think like, I love though that the Senator like realized that like, no, he put it back perfectly. Like the same as it was, you know, and it's just like, that's, that's really funny to me yeah so striker actually like attacks magneto with like the psi scanner which is still loaded with like xavier's power and it knocks magneto to the floor and the crowd starts to come after him but uh he has like just enough power to kind of like keep them back you know like with like he's like holding them back and uh uh the senator as well as the cops start to like kind of make their way through to help uh realizing at this point somehow that it's gone too far and um in an effort to save Xavier, the X-Men are now like fighting the purifier guards. And, um, even like, even though it's pretty dire, like it, they, there's like some cool description, like in the monologue where they're like, they're like, they're, they're literally dying on their feet, like, you know, getting closer to him and whatnot from Xavier's attack. And, uh, evil Anne actually comes up to strikers podium. Which, oh, this, yeah. This part. Of yeah. The, uh, oh dude. Yeah. So, but she's bleeding and she's dying from the machine's effects. And as she is a latent mutant, it turns out. And, uh, Striker like just denounces her like instantly. Oh, I mean, he fired her in the worst way possible. <laughs> yeah, dude, and like, and and she yells at him, but and and uh, like he's he's like you know rebuttals her basically by pushing her off the large stage, causing her to fall on her neck, and she dies like yeah. in front of all these people, and like so she's just going crazy at this point, and like Magneto. Then gets a great moment where uh, he kind of leans up and he says, uh, is this then the holy word, reverend, that any who oppose you must die? And the crowd is like livid and they would still want to kill Magneto. But the cops show up and actually stop him. They help. They're like, they're like, get away, <laughs> you know, like whatever. And uh, meanwhile, Wolverine, Nightcrawler and Cyclops are kind of like debating what to do because like Xavier can like see them coming and defend himself so they have to attack simultaneously in like two different ways to get one in, like just hope that one attack gets in. And uh, Nightcrawler 
like teleports Wolverine right next to him as Cyclops like fires like, you know, famous ricochet blast, you know, to hit Xavier unexpectedly. And luckily, Xavier's attention is set on Wolverine. So Scott's blast like knocks him out long enough so that they he, he like then immediately destroys the machine. Um, and I love that little moment like <laughs> where Wolverine and Cyclops talk because uh, they acknowledge that like Wolverine's like my way would have killed him, you know, like, <laughs> like, like, like it would like he would have, you know, and, and Scott's just like. I know like, you know, and, and I love that because he took that risk because, you know, it's, it's what leaders do. You know, you gotta, you gotta do that. It's like, I love Cyclops. I don't care what people say, (laughs) (laughs) but but no, here comes, uh, in my opinion, uh, the best moment in the book, uh, the climax of the book, you could say, um, Colossus says that they have won and they should go, but Cyclops refuses saying that they have to stand up for or stand up to the real threat, which is Stryker and his words. Uh, all the X-Men join in taking the stage. Like they're not fighting anymore. Uh, and, uh, Cyclops says that they deserve equal time to answer for the charges Stryker has laid against them. And Stryker is like, you know, well, well, if it's your word against mine, I have nothing to hide, nothing to fear. I'm a man of God. And Scott tells, uh, he tells like the crowd of the children murdered a few days ago, like, you know, in Connecticut from the beginning of the book and striper striker rebutes by saying uh, that they, along with the X-Men are not human. And Scott gets a great little speech here, which I'm just going to quote. Cause like I said, I can't do it justice. Um, uh, he says, says who you, what makes your link with heaven any stronger than mine? We have unique gifts, but none more so and none more special than those granted a physician or physicist or philosopher or athlete It could be due to an accident of nature or divine providence. Who's to say? Are arbitrary labels more important than the way we live our lives? What we're supposed to be more important than what we actually are? For all you know, we could be the real human race and the rest of you, the mutants. And now before we move on to like the next kind of iconic moment uh, from this story, um, I just gotta say how much I love that Xavier is. I love that Xavier is off the table here. Um, this is usually a moment like we were talking about earlier where, you know, he would take center stage and give a big speech because Xavier has always been like, well, I mean, he's always been the figurehead of this and you rarely, you know, as writers, just the one figure who it always made sense to have him deliver the speech in part, the lesson and what, yeah, he had to be that lesson. And then like here, I totally agree with you. Cyclops speech is very, it's, it's, it's so like, poignant to the whole like well just because you came first doesn't or how do you know you came first yeah like and and i love that yeah just the fact that it's you know it's since it's not xavier it's his first student and you know adoptive son basically cyclops and he really it really feels like some character development of him coming into his own as it's and it's i love that it's written so well because like not only is it like poignant and and just a good speech but like it doesn't sound like Xavier just through Scott's mouth. That would have been like an easy trap to kind of fall into. I think like just have Cyclops gives the speech, you know, or whatever, but like, it sounds like a bit more aggressive and like direct than Xavier usually is. Like, it sounds like Cyclops, you know, and like how he would do it his own way. And like, I, yeah, I, I love that. It's, it's just uh, it really shows Scott growing and coming into his own here. And um, yeah, no, just, but it's my favorite moment of the book, I think, but, uh, for sure. But like, uh, then now we get, we get, uh, right after that, literally the, the most iconic panel from the story, which I'm sure you've probably seen before, even just knowing about the story. Yeah. Like, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, 
Stryker angry and pointing at Nightcrawler, yelling, human, you dare call that thing human. Um, and then Kitty gets a great speech where, <laughs> wherein she uh, defends her friend. And uh, she says that Kurt is more human than Stryker and defends like his character in like a really touching speech. Um, she says that he, she's like, you know, I wish I could be half the person that Kurt is and that uh, if she has to choose between believing in Stryker's God or caring for her friend, she's going to choose her friend. And um, Stryker then <laughs> holds up a gun to Kitty and uh, saying that those blasphemous words will be her epitaph. And uh, all the X-Men, like, I, I love the fact that, like, literally they all just stand. Like, they all just stand proud. Like, they are not moving, not flinching. And we get this amazing panel sequence with no dialogue. Really good storytelling by Anderson here, <laughs> I think. Um, where Stryker cocks the gun and you get, like, all these close-up shots. And then you see, like, a blam. But then Stryker looks down. There's blood on his hand. And he's been shot in the shoulder by one of the police officers. And the cops like disband the mob, telling the mutants that they're free to go. Uh, There's a great moment where a person in the crowd is all, he shot the reverend. And like another officer goes, yeah, a guy who was about to shoot an unarmed little girl. Like, you know, it's just like it, 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 they just, they vilified themselves successfully, you know, and the X-Men stood proud and, uh, and won the argument, which is great. And and it's sort of like, (laughs) and it's, it's a choice because you know, he could have written that to where he tried to shoot Kitty. Kitty just phases. phases yeah. And, you know, he gets hit with his own ricochet. Yeah. But like he specifically had a human stand up, had a human stand up for mutants to basically, you know, do that moment of like, there's always going to be somebody he, like it, it's it's poignant because it's humanity is never totally lost. Yeah. Yeah. They are making an impact, even if it doesn't feel like it a lot of the time. And that's that's great. Like, um, so, yeah, then we, we jump to the the epilogue is like this uh, powerful kind of scene that that further illustrates Scott's growth as a leader, I think, um, which we kind of touched on a little earlier. But like, you know, the X-Men see days later on the news that Stryker has been arraigned. Um, Magneto talks about how, you know, he's like, this is a hollow, hollow victory, you know, and all this stuff. And. How people are already saying, like, you know, Stryker was right. His methods were just a little messed up, you know, whatever, justifying it, basically. And um, surprisingly, uh, Xavier agrees with them and is just, like, kind of hopeless. And it's it's weird. Like, it's like, you know, I mean, but through all of this, like, Xavier is just not feeling it. He, he does. He's not confident in his in his self or his words anymore. And um, he's like, there's no way to win. And Colossus even asks if the professor means that they should join Magneto. And, and Professor X is like, why not? You know, like, I mean, <laughs> like, you know, and uh, Scott steps up saying that he's like, I won't accept that, you know, and um, he goes on about how times are tough and they'll probably get worse, you know, but but they have to do things right no matter what, because the means are as important as the end, which is, you know, very strong message of the book here. And uh, Magneto then asks if like Charles himself will join him and Charles refuses saying that, like, you know, if. If his students are willing to give his dream a chance, then he he has to, you know, and uh, Magneto leaves citing like too big of a difference in like their approaches, you know, so the status quo is kind of returned there, even though they have a, a bit more of an understanding of each other at this point. Um, and Xavier like apologizes to the students and uh, saying that, you know, he feels ashamed. And Scott has a, another great line where he says that um, uh, there's no shame in like, you know, being as flawed as everybody else, you know, like everybody has their moments like that. And Xavier starts to shed tears and Nightcrawler hands him a tissue from the ceiling, which is adorable. 
Nice. <laughs> but yeah, like the, the book ends with Scott and Aurora on a balcony um, outside and they hug and talk of pretty much just like hope for the future and that hopefully the love and care that they have will mean a better future. And that's the end of God Loves Man Kills. You know, like it, it didn't occur to me until Scott and uh, Storm are on that balcony. Like there's no there's no Jean Grey in this book. Yeah. You know, and at the time it wasn't like it was meant to not be in continuity. So you could have put anyone on there. So they knowingly made these choices that didn't line up with what people had read up to that time. I bet Claremont, though, would like was like planning like if this is ever in continuity, mm. I can work it. And also, I think I, I read an interview once with him about it where um the reason like the cast is what they are is because like if you notice, I think it, 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 this is good for overall thoughts as well, too, because I think that everybody gets a strong moment and um, the team is a little bit uh, the cast of characters is a little bit smaller. And I think obviously that's just because it's a, you know, a graphic novel self-contained thing where like he only got 64 pages and he didn't want to overrun it with, you know, 14 X-Men characters. So he just stuck to like, you know, the six ones and, and gave them all like a moment. Um, I don't know. Like, how do you feel about like uh, in, in terms of like the cast and whatnot? Do you do you agree? Like, do you think everybody got like a, a good enough moment to justify them being one of like, you know, a sixth of the book? <laughs> you know, everybody, everybody gets a moment. But except for except for Wolverine and Colossus. I think everybody got a moment of like, I think Wolverine has a lot of good lines, but the moments aren't like as illustrated. They're more just like a random panel instead of like a full scene yeah, or something. Yeah. And and it's typical because you don't really always, you don't think of Wolverine as the character that's always going to shed the light on something. Um, whereas like all these other characters, honestly, like they get their moment of, you know, they win the argument. Yeah. Versus winning the battle. Yeah. I think that Colossus, like, even though I think he, he technically does more than Wolverine in the book. He does. I, I mean, he, I, <laughs> he, 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 he ripped the car apart. Yeah. He ripped the car apart. Yeah. So like, I feel like Colossus probably has like, even though, like I said, I think that he literally has more page real estate and does more than Wolverine in the book. I feel like he does the least in terms of like the plot. Cause he's usually, he kind of plays the dummy in which he's always like, well, what should we go with Magneto? You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> like, and he's also the one right before Scott gives his big rousing speech. He's like, we've won, let's go home. You know? <laughs> and like, so it's like, he, he's kind of just along for the ride, but like, uh, but I, I still think like his moments are cool. He definitely has the coolest fight scene moment, like in the book, I think. So, I mean, you know, maybe he's, he's the action piece guy, but even, <laughs> but even that moment of like, you know, when, when they, when Xavier's question in his own dream, yeah, like it needs to be said. And it's to have it said by Colossus, who is supposed to, in, in not in a derogatory sense to Colossus, if he's listening, but, <laughs> supposed to be like the simpleton of the group yeah yeah it makes sense so, i mean it's not it's not like out of character or it's, anything. it's not out of no, character it's a, and it's so like to the point of what we're all thinking is well yeah if magneto was right why doesn't everybody join him yeah yeah it makes sense i mean like yeah i mean um i guess like leading from there um i guess we're it's kind of a weirdly phrased question but like uh considering that like you kind of had a basis for the story or even just like 
knew about it, like, you know, for, for so long and also had the context of X2, mm-hmm. like, you know, as kind of being like the basis. So a lot of those themes kind of cross like with the story, but, um, uh, the execution of like the themes in the story, I think are pretty exceptionally done. Um, especially for being confined to just, you know, the, the, basically the size of three issues of a comic. Um, and I was just wondering if it, if it met kind of your expectations for like what you kind of thought it might be. I mean, so like the only expectation I had going in was essentially X2. And despite like what everybody or what some people say is like, "Eh, it's not really, it's not really that it's different and blah, blah, blah. Like this is still kind of what I expected. What I did not expect was the just tone down of how bombastic, you know, superhero comics are in general. Yeah. Like, so if you would have gave this, so 11 year old me picks up X-Men number four. If this would have been the next thing you gave him, I probably wouldn't be reading X-Men today because <laughs> like there's so much of this that as an, as a kid is just going to go over my head. Yeah. And it's so dark and not generally what, kid what a kid is looking for in a superhero comic no it's definitely not it's definitely not like in that sense like it honestly it didn't meet my expectation don't get me wrong this is this is a book that does things that sadly are still relevant today yeah and yeah it it you know like after reading it like i see why it has its place in history but it wasn't like it's such a departure, um, not thematically, but in terms of an action movie that teaches me a lesson. Like I, I had, bec- I had gotten accustomed to X Men being like it's a departure for me, and it's not that I didn't, I, I liked it, but I like it as an adult. I know I would not have liked it as a kid. I kind, I agree with you because like, um, and and I think that just looking at the context of like this time period, like not just for X-Men, but like if you, for Marvel with them doing these graphic novels, like the first one was the death of Captain Marvel. So it's the the one where he got cancer. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think there was just like a, something in the water about like after Starlin did that story, everyone's like, Oh, well you just do like some real world fucked up stuff. (laughs) Like, or whatever. you know, it's like, I don't know. Like it, like it'd be interesting to, and, yeah, there's there's gonna be people out there that are, are listening to this that that know off the top of their head, but like I would like to know personally, like if this came if this and like the Captain Marvel graphic novel came before like DC did those stories of uh Green Arrow's sidekick doing, you know, heroin or whatever. Yeah, um uh, the hard traveling hero stuff. Yeah. Um, Oh my God. What time? I think this, I think that was before because that was the seventies. Yeah. So, so th- yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. So then, yeah. So then in a way, I think they were, t- they might with the graphic novel stuff, um, that Marvel was doing, which I wish they would go back to doing. I really liked that. Um, uh, I think the last one they did was the, uh, Reminder got to do one for the, the rage of Ultron with, uh, Opinia doing the art. Um, I, I just, I, not that I'd say that that story, I mean like, I haven't read that in a long time. I remember liking it for what it is, but like, I wish that Marvel would still do the 
the OGN thing. <laughs> I, I enjoyed that. Um, but, uh, that's beside the point. Um, but yeah, I think that Marvel was just trying at that point to appeal to, they realized there's a market for that stuff, you know, like the, the more like, you know, comics can be for adults yeah. <laughs> and have those themes. And, and I mean, that in, in general, like that's kind of what Marvel's edge was, uh, in the Stan Lee days was supposed to be telling about, you know, real world problems. Yeah. But he was just doing it in a way that was more like, Oh, here's how he's got to pay rent. Yeah. Now here's how he's he, got for every, yeah. for every cool, amazing thing he does. He's got a, he's got a real problem. He's got, you know, you know yeah. the real problems were like, Oh, got to study from a driving test. Oh, I missed, I missed the date with Betty. I, like missed, her, I missed my date. And then <laughs> okay. like, and then DC comes along, takes it up. And then Marvel comes along and is like, well, let's do these problems, but let's do them the way we know how, which is like, let's tell the story that touches on honestly they're not touching on the specific issue like the drug wars they're talking they're talking about you know the themes that have like plagued humanity for hundreds of years you know yeah so it's it's kind of like doing this doing doing this story really was like an eye-opening thing even even as an adult to get all these things in how Basically, like, I, 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 I hate to say this, but like how religion and racism seem to just cross paths so much in, in the world. And or, or just using I, I think even even in a broader sense, like people, religious fanaticism that uses the identity of religion to justify terrible views and behavior, you know, I mean, like, uh. And this particularly is obviously aimed at racism, like mm-hmm. in, in this one. Um, but yeah, I mean, like the fact the striker like to, to justifies everything through it. You know, I mean, like it, it's a murder, like you know, <laughs> I mean, like 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 anything, you know. And it's a, it's, yeah, that's a that's a heavy topic to bring it to is, to, an a, X-Men book. to an X Men to an X Men book, you know. <laughs> and it's funny, like, have you seen that video lately um, about the group of people on the plane that? like essentially hijacks the plane by singing about Jesus. No. Yeah. Like it's, it's a video on TikTok. Like, and it's, it's a bunch of like uh young adult college or late teenage kids. And they just start like a, like some kind of jam session on a plane full of people, you know, singing about the Lord and everything. And like so whoever's taking the video, you know, circles the plane or waves camera around and you see people that are like visibly, uncomfortable and there's just like and it shows like there's just this segment of people who are so zealot they literally can't see what their fanaticism does to the world around them they're so interspersed and self and in a way self-righteous yeah they can't see it so like honestly like if i was on that plane i would love to just hand them this and go like here read this <laughs> this is what you look like to me yeah yeah you know? and and it's curious too because like um i think that this is reading even deeper into the theme and it's obviously not something that's like touched upon like directly in like this book but the idea of like religion and in particular the the people who become extremist like striker is in the book it's like they do these horrible things or end up in like this lost place where they can't deal with 
something they did or, or how bad they feel or just something, you know, it's, it's a traumatizing thing almost. And like, it's like you look to something that for answers and for a lot of people, like, cause I mean, I, I will say like, you know, religion obviously has, has worked for a lot of people and, and it has done a lot of good for the world. But at the same time, like it, it causes those people who are broken or, or have done terrible things to look to something like religion because it is like the light per se for them or something pure and good. And then if they have that on their side, they can continue to justify whatever they do. And, you know, in Stryker's like warped view, like, cause he, he does think he's doing the right thing. You know, he thinks that he's chosen and all this stuff. And, and that's just like, there's a psychological angle that obviously like a 64 page X-Men comic book can't go into like too much, but like, uh, but it's, um, it's, it's, it's great that, um, something like this, it's like, I talked about this with, uh, with my buddy Brett, when we talked about Silver Surfer Parable and just in the sense of like, yeah, I mean, on paper, it's about a silver dude who cosmic being guy who fights a dude in like a big purple helmet and stuff and like but but it's like it, it's it's it gets us to talk about like these themes and like even if um i i think that god loves man kills is uh you know like with claremont's writing and whatnot is a lot more uh, nuanced and a lot more um you know less like uh hitting you over the head 100 percent with like the meanings and the messages um than like silver silver parable by stan lee did did. Mm -hmm. but like but at the same time it's uh it's it does come off as like you know these are like philosophy kind of 101 questions a lot of the time but it's great that like something like an x-men book can get us to talk about this stuff and really like self-analyze and that's kind of like the beauty of it to me and just the fact that it has this um impact and meaning like for so many different reasons to so many different people, that's what kind of, I think cements this as one of my favorites, you know, um, beyond it being just like my first X-Men book that I read, you know? Yeah. And you know, and the reality is X-Men as an idea and, and an execution has always been the easiest way to teach, uh, to teach a critical race theory. It's like, because yeah, it's easy for, it's meant for for children to be able to absorb and it's every story is on the basis of there are people in this world who are hated and feared and treated differently just because of how they were born yeah and the world uh, and in x-men the world always conspires against them whether it was with giant robots political policy that was that was all it and and it's honestly the only it's really the only comic book series um, for so many years that really took that took on that role. Like the Avengers don't take on this role. No, I mean <laughs> even Spider Man. Spider Man, like yeah, for all this whole anybody can be under the mask. Like now it's a white guy taking pictures under the mask. The X Men are are special in the way that like that Colonel um, that is the idea of the X Men has stayed with them the whole time. Um, I mean, I guess you could argue that for something like Spider-Man of like, you know, I guess like the thesis of like great power and great responsibility type thing, but that's, that's different from like the real world implications of like the X-Men, you know, that's more like morality, like kind of, um, you know, you know, things like that. The only departure (laughs) of, uh, of God loves man kills is, you know, X-Men as a franchise has always been spearheaded morally 
by Xavier giving you the big the big speech, the big lessons. Yeah. But in, in this book was really the first time, um, you know, like we talked about everybody at that speech. And it was just like, you know, great. Everybody gets to go through Xavier's school of communications, I guess. Yeah. Like it's such a like, and that was the thing that stuck out to me about this book the most was that I during reading it didn't stick to me, but like, as I absorbed it at the end, yeah, like I'm really getting into what Cyclops, you know, has someone who has been taught by Xavier, who has been affected by the world, who's been taught by a Magneto. Like I get his point of view for the first time and what that means to, to the mission. Like I get, and this is the first time, you know, like I've seen shadow cat, be a character of great character with great moments, but the first time she's been a character of substance really. Yeah. I mean like, um, you get, I, I agree with the substance thing because like, um, you could argue that she had moments before, like, you know, I mean like obviously famously, like the biggest one would be days of future past. Mm -hmm. Um, but then it's like, she's more just like the POV going through the motions and she has like character quirks and whatnot. Like, I mean, hell, even in like that story at that point, like she does not like Nightcrawler. Like, I mean, I don't know if you remember that from like the early Claremont stuff when like she first comes in, but she does, she's scared of Nightcrawler. She does not yep. like she, like he scares her by just the way he looks. And she goes through like some development to the point of where, you know, like in, where she gets in this book where she's just calling him fuzzy elf. And then it's like her best friend, you know, um, defending him to, you know, a religious zealot, you know, but, uh, but like, yeah, Kitty, um, Kitty had to grow, you know and I mean? Like, and, uh, and I think that this point is like a, a huge, huge, like milestone for her growth, like as a character is this story in this book. Um, yeah, no, that, that's what like to me, I think even reading the stuff sequentially, um, I think God loves man kills is like the first moment that I'm like, Oh yeah. Kitty has like, arrived you know like as a as a real character you know i mean like and someone who i genuinely love to follow you know and yeah. and does stuff you know what, this, what the the weird part about this book is is because it's like if this is your first introduction to the x-men where do you go from here that isn't just as uh or that like is just as powerful or keeps this kind of idea of the meaning and the mission. So, so humanized because everything else is really, you know, it has human elements, but it's, it's, it's got comic book grandeur, which yeah. you needed to. So it really depends because it's like, you know, there's been so many runs of the X-Men, so many different creative teams yeah. that like you get stuff like this. It's just, um, from here you get, you got to dive like, you know, and go into, go into whatever eras you want. I mean, and you'll find gems there, but yeah, it's, a, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a journey. Like I said, at the beginning of this, like the X-Men for me, like at the beginning, like I wanted so badly to dive in, but they were, they were intimidating, you know, because of just like the longstanding history and so much knowledge and so many characters and everybody loves them. So that's why the X-Men have been like the least the least retconned and least re not retconned. I mean, least rebooted <laughs> out of all the Marvel characters because people love that history and they've invested so much in these characters. You know, you can't take that away. Well, yeah. And, and to an extent that that history is more accessible than other characters history. So like 
like I, like I started with uh, with the Jim Lee, essentially one through 11. And then I kept on X-Men through Executioner's Song, through um, uh, uh, Extinction Agenda. Ex- well, no, Extinction <laughs> Agenda was before. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but like, uh, oh, so uh, was Age of, Age of Apocalypse before Phalanx or after? Oh, Phalanx Covenant. I think it's I think it's after after. OK. Yeah. Yeah. So it was basically like during Phalanx Covenant, I dropped off a bit and didn't read the onslaught thing uh, when it happened. I wouldn't read that till after. <laughs> so but like at the point where I dropped off, I it was because it felt like it wasn't what it was to me at the beginning. But I was able to go back to 275 with the with the Shi'ar Empire stuff and then like have that feel the same as what I had started with. And that is not something you can do with like, like you can do that with daredevil. Um, you can't really do that with Thor or captain America or any of the Avengers style characters. Like it's really only like the X-Men that you get that you can go back to something that feels like where you jumped in on. And honestly, like I wouldn't go I, I really wouldn't go back to reading the X-Men until Grant Morrison came along to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And then from there, it was like on and off because it really became... They went through a, they went through a turbulent time. It, it was weird. Because <laughs> it, 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 it was so radical depending on who was writing the main book. Yeah. Yeah. But like, you know, this is this is still the thing that got me into comics and still the thing that I still want to know what's going on with it. Yeah. And not not because it was the first for me, but because honestly, it's still even with like the new Jonathan Hickman version of Moira McTaggart and everything. It still is the same principle of these people had like now they had to go and make their own island to essentially try to show the world that they can govern themselves. Yeah. And it's what so many countries now are trying to do, you know, when Hong Kong um, looked for freedom from, uh, from their ruling country. So it's still like the best X-Men stories are always going to be the ones that find something in the real universe. I agree. I agree. And I mean, like uh, not just because I'm, you know, a sucker for anything Hickman does, but like, you know, it's a, it's a, it, it, yeah. I mean like, um, the X-Men, even through like the turbulent times I mentioned earlier, still had like glimmers of like just some really great poignant stuff. Like, I mean, like, uh, I'd say arguably like, I, I don't want to call it the worst, just the, just the, the most down that I've been on X-Men, uh, was before, not directly before, um, even though I was reading it then still, um, the Hickman stuff, uh, when they kind of took over and made X-Men forefront again at Marvel. And, uh, is when they were kind of like, you know, it's no secret that, uh, you know, Marvel was trying to replace the X-Men for a long time, uh, with the Inhumans, um, because of, uh, movie rights and whatnot, they weren't really giving the X-Men like the greatest opportunities or, you know, I mean, sometimes they get a good creative team, but then they run, we get cut short or whatever. Like they just didn't really care. And, um, but you know, you still had good stuff. Like, I mean, like, uh, I really enjoyed like, um, Tom Taylor's, uh, X-Men red series. That, that was good. Went on. Yeah. yeah it, and that was during like, you know, 
some not so great stuff. <laughs> um, uh, and, you know, I don't even really blame like the creative teams at that point in, in that tenure. I just feel like Marvel just didn't really care <laughs> at that at the time. And we're just like, uh, whatever, <laughs> just, yeah. do, do, you know, don't make them do anything important. You know, it's like, uh, but, you know, there, there've always been some form of the X-Men that is like, core and true to like what they started with. So I think you're right. Like in the way that, uh, you can, there's always something you can jump onto and feel connected to if you know the X-Men at all, I think. Yeah. Um, whether, I mean, whether it's like, if you read it as a kid, you become an adult and you have a kid of your own, you can give them that book. And if it's the first time you've looked at that book, you see so many of the same themes. Yeah. Yeah. That, and that's the universalness of it. And I, I think, I don't really think that there is any other property in any comic book company that is that true to itself. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, like this, just this book that we've been talking about is like a pretty perfect distillation of just what the X-Men should be and, and are, I think, <laughs> uh, you know, at the, at the, at the kind of, um, you know, core of just, uh, or if you're trying to be like, um, supremely positive over like what the X-Men represent and whatnot. I think that this is a great example. Um, I feel like we, we've talked about like, uh, the writing and the art enough, really, <laughs> I guess on this one. Um, uh, Oh, uh, one thing I wanted to touch on, um, <laughs> just, just a quick side note here. Um, uh, so we had this conversation beforehand a little bit. We didn't go too deep into it, but, um, uh, so there are, there's a new version of this book. Um, called the extended cut. Oh, uh, and, and, uh, and so, um, I just want to talk about like real fast. Cause that's yeah, the yeah, version yeah, you yeah. read, right? Well, <laughs> like it's like- I actually like, um, I read, and this is a good point. You know, I read, I made it, I made it a point. So the first time I read this, it was going to be as it was originally published. Okay. Yeah. You know, and I, like I start with the scene in the, in, in the school where the kids are, are shot. Yes. Because, when you, when you talk about the extended version and the new framework, not starting with that really kind of takes some of the bite. It's some of the, that initial yeah. shock value bite that you need to just hit you like right there and get you in. And that's not to say that like, okay, so just to, just to be clear, like for the listeners here, like the quote unquote, like the extended cut that we're talking about, it adds five pages at the beginning and, and adds another five pages at the, at the end. end. Yeah. But it is not like an additional scene to the story. It's um it's a framing device uh, that is written by Claremont and drawn by Anderson. So like the original team, but like uh, um, not colored or lettered by the same people. But um, it's uh, it, it, talk about how bizarre of a choice it was for for the framing device, because basically it's it's Kitty like in her modern, like, you know, when the story was republished, which was just like a few years ago. Um, but, uh, talking to a character who, if you didn't read this random X-Men black issue that Claremont wrote a couple years prior, which gives the full context for who that character even is, it's just some one-off random Magneto story. Um, which isn't like bad. It's fine. I, I got it right here. I had to read it because I had to remember what the extended cut did, but like, uh, it, it's basically just Magneto meets a, a little girl <laughs> and, yep. uh, and they, they have a, they have a touching moment and, um, uh, she, she helps him remember to follow his dreams or something. I don't know. And, uh, <laughs> and like, and, uh, and, and the framework is Kate meeting this girl 
and just I guess telling her the story of God loves man kills. Yeah, so, <laughs> like, so the framework is essentially just basically we're gonna put this into continuity uh, because the kitty you know now is telling the story of God loves man kills to someone who is in Marvel continuity. Yeah, so, who's never going to be used again and never has been used. I mean, really, that's probably <laughs> why that character even exists. Yeah, it's just like this is the bridge to bring this graphic novel that stood on its own into our continuity. It was just such a weird choice. Like I'm not opposed to them reissuing this and like doing a framework piece like that. It's just so weird that it's like intrinsically tied to this one random issue that Claremont wrote. And I get like, it's his work. So like, you know, he should, he he wants to, you know, make stuff matter and, and connect to his other bodies of work. But Claremont even though he, um, we talked about this a lot too before we started recording, but like, even though Claremont is a lot more positive on his legacy with the X-Men nowadays, anytime that he comes back to do something, it doesn't seem like he gives a shit of what's going on. I mean, I know he doesn't. He, cause he doesn't even remember like what the books are called that he released half the time. Like he's always like, I did that Magneto issue. I don't remember what it was called. Well, <laughs> like, I mean, you know? did, uh, did you read, uh, his uh his nightcrawler series with todd knock yes yeah it was a great series great series it was yeah he, like you know he doesn't really remember he's doing a gambit one soon too he's I doing think. A, yeah he's, i think he's doing <laughs> the gambit one soon and the thing is though is that when he does these like he's he's brought back to do these one off series characters just to kind of like put his name back out there and sell it based on his name which you know good enough for him great yeah for him making the money but there's so many roadblocks in what he really wants to do. So like, yeah, if you see him now, I would recommend really asking him about the Jonathan Hickman X-Men verse. Yeah, because he I'd had, be curious to know. What he, he, no, he, he has a lot of stories of the things he wanted to do, but he couldn't do because this other thing was coming along. Yeah. So and, and Marvel wasn't willing to sort of like do any more offshoots that don't belong in continuity yeah so it was either it fit or it didn't um or if you can't or if it doesn't fit can you make it fit which is really like a less it's it's a weird less creatively driven type of product you end up with and the and the thing was it was like like i love that nightcrawler series he did yeah no it's it's great it's great and like i i wish he would do sort of like more things like that. And there's so many people that he still wants to work with. Uh, Supposedly, um, the, the aforementioned uh, Gambit series we just mentioned that's coming out. I don't know if it's mini or if it's like supposed to be an ongoing or something, but I guess it's, um, they're doing that thing (laughs) at least, at least from what I remember reading about it, but it's, um, it's not in modern continuity. It's like, the, the effect that they're doing, like, cause you know how they let Peter David write those symbiote Spider-Man stories now from back in the day. Yeah. Like, retroactively and, 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 and like the X-Men legends uh, yeah. series that's going on now. Yeah. I think it's going to be like that. Like, it, like, just like he can just put it where he wants and do a Gambit story. <laughs> like, which, you know, for him, I think is a good idea. You know what I mean? Like, cause he doesn't really seem to give a shit about what's going on anyway, because I, and I don't blame him. I mean, if I were Claremont and had that, not just the the clout, but just the, how much work I put into the characters. It's like, I want to write my version of the characters, you know, and like do it my way. I don't want to have to worry about all this other shit. It, it's, it's, <laughs> like, yeah, you, you can't make somebody like Chris Claremont go to your current continuity. Yeah. It's, it's like, it's, it's like having, and then this is a joke is like, it's having 
it's basically having the people who created the show The Wire on a show where you're explaining their show to them. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, we know this. Like, let us tell you about it. Yeah. Chris Claremont has every right to do what he wants with those characters. I mean, and it's Marvel's choice, whether they want something in continuity or just willing to, like, do something for yeah. the fun of it. And they do seem a lot more open to that now, considering all the retro series that they've been letting people do and whatnot. So, I mean, you know, I I think that'll be a good fit for him. I'll definitely check out the Gambit series when it comes out for sure. I mean, like just see what he does. Claremont's kind of one of those guys that like, you know, see his name and I'm like, got to give it a shot at least, you know? (laughs) And yeah. And and like I was saying, like I, I would come to appreciate him as a writer later on in my, in my comic book reading, because at the, at the time, you know, even just reading X-Men number one, you remember like those last couple of pages where Magneto's given his speech and yes. like it's more words than everything. The kid in me was kind of like, I just want to see the pictures. It's like there's paragraphs of yeah. things he's saying. And, and then like as an adult, I go back and I read it and I'm like, wow, that was actually really powerful writing there. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I, and his and his 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 uh, flowery prose that he does. I, I love it. Yeah, I, 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 I agree with you. Like, yeah, he's he's a guy who, you know, like you know not counting the legacy that he has he knows what he's talking about in this universe because it was like yeah stan lee understood the foundation of these people are weird and we're gonna see what the world does to them but claremont was the guy who was like this is what the real world does yeah to them. he took it and actually ran with yeah. it yeah no i 100 agree yeah i mean like yeah, man. I don't know. Um, uh, well, before I ask you the uh, the the point of this podcast question, <laughs> I guess, um, uh, uh, just wondered, uh, did you have anything else to add about the story or X Men or anything in in regards? Um, I think specifically, like, um, I gotta say, like, you know, with Batman, my introduction to Batman was the animated series. Yeah, I was lucky enough that. I found this comic book world before I watched that cartoon. The cartoon is great. I freaking loved it. You know, I even went to Pizza Hut to get the pizza. Um, (laughs) Nice. But yeah, like this, it's, it's weird. Like, I love this. This got me into comics, but I still like have so many of its like classics that I never got to go back. I still haven't gone back and read. Not that I can't. I mean, that's why like you get a Marvel subscription these days. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like I, I, I love this and like I, I lo- like I love this cast of characters. I love this whole universe and I, I would generally still like to go back some point and see or read more of that stuff. Like, have you read Days of Future Past? Oh, yeah, man. Yeah. X-Men. X-Men is when I've covered most of the bases, but there are still there's some I mean, I think everybody has those classics that they just haven't read yet. You know what I mean? Like and it's like but X-Men is one that like I. When I dove in, I dove in real hard. <laughs> so like, so I, uh, I've, I've hit most of the like, you know, milestone ones. Um, uh, I'm, I'm at the point where like with X-Men, the stuff that I haven't read or that like is, is like kind of constantly on my mental docket to read is stuff that's not a hundred percent obscure, but it's just stuff that like, I'm like, I'm like, that's actually like critically pretty well liked, but not a lot of people talk about it. Like that's like the Mike Carey run and stuff yeah. like like i have not read that stuff yet and i hear that it's great and uh and and you know i'm just like uh it, that that's kind of where i'm at with x-men 
yeah, so, so <laughs> like, you know, it, it just occurred to me. So in May, um, we're putting together this this panel in Ontario, California um, with Chris Claremont and Larry Houston, who was one of the producers on the animated series. Yeah. And, you know, we're, we're doing this like uh, page to screen kind of thing with with those two. And it just occurred to me, like, Dark Phoenix Saga is something I've only ever experienced as an animated version. I've never read that. Really? Like, okay. I've never read that series. Dude, that's that's some. Oh, God, that's some classic shit. The animated series actually does it pretty good justice, I will say. Like, well, that's what I hear. Yeah, because yeah, it's like what is it's like five parts or something like mm-hmm. that. I think they do it. Um, but uh, it it really does do it pretty good justice. Um, uh, it, it trims the fat of like all the Claremontism like side plots that are going on, you know? <laughs> so like, I mean, you just kind of get the emotive like story of the Phoenix, which is, which is, uh, all well and told in the, in the animated series. Um, right on. I'm actually yeah. like, I should probably, that's probably going to be the next. I mean, yeah, I would list, still yeah. obviously recommend to read it, but yeah, yeah it's yeah. Uh, but it, it does do it justice. I think, um, uh, in the context of the animated series, uh, that's my, my favorite set of episodes from that series. Besides the one where, um, uh, it's like a two-parter where Bishop, it might be the first time Bishop comes back, but, um, he accuses, uh, Gambit yeah. of, uh, <laughs> of murdering like that, uh, the, the president or the Senator or whatever, when it's mystique. Um, I mostly love that episode or the first episode of that because, um, I love, I love the season two one, uh, when he comes back and he's trying to stop the virus. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and my, like my favorite part of that is just, uh, when Cable kidnaps Wolverine, they're in that weird ass hotel room. He's melted the door handles. Yeah. Like it's very cringy. And then, you know, Wolverine's like, right. Apocalypse teamed up with the tooth fairy. Like, I don't know. Just stand out like comedy for me. Like my, my, my favorite unintentional comedy from the, that episode we were just talking about with Bishop coming back to get Gambit is uh, the fact that he comes in, he can't remember at first which X-Men it is. Like, because Gambit's not in the room because mm-hmm. like the instant he sees him, he's like, it's you. Um, but, uh, he's telling the X-Men like, you know, one of you like does something and like, and I need to stop it because it like ruins my future or whatever. And Cyclops just goes, it can't be Gene. Like just out of nowhere. <laughs> like it, like it, like he just, he just defends Gene. And then Gene does the, does the, no, Scott, you know that even I sometimes have my dark days and it's like it's the most melodrama fucking shit ever and i love it oh my God, yeah. <laughs> like, and, and the other parts of that stuff is like the the animation mistakes like actually um with our our, our friend scott i've always like um him and uh erica uh you know we we talked about the animated series one time and like before it was ever going to be on disney plus um as it was we're just like oh my god we gotta like do like a watch of every episode and just talk about how fucking weird some of these mistakes were. Like, <laughs> yeah. Just like some of the poses are like, yeah. Just, yeah, there's just, you know, they were flying by the seat of their pants, but it, it captivated the shit out of little me. Oh yeah. No, like, <laughs> like, like, yeah, no straight up little, like young me was all into it, all on board. Me as an adult was like, wow, did they not have editors on this show? <laughs> Yeah, man. I don't know. I feel like it was literally just like a breakneck thing. They were just like, go, go, go or something like it was unprecedented time for just 
cool animation totally. <laughs> shows back then. But yeah. Oh, well, yeah, man. I guess, like I said, I'll go ahead and ask you the, the old ultimate question then. Um, so X-Men God Loves Man Kills, is that a, a, a pull or a drop for you? See, and I, and I hate going back to the same answer, but like me as a, as a kid, like not having any like substantial money to buy comics and having to be pickier would probably drop it. Yeah. Me as an adult <laughs> would probably pull it. Very nice. You know, and actually like I would, this is one of those books, like as an adult, I would pull it and I would get whatever second print they did for it just because the cover was slightly different or yeah. black and white. <laughs> yeah. I think, um, they did a, uh, they did one of those gallery editions for it. Yeah. Like the super huge ones, but I, I think it's the extended cut, <laughs> but, which again, I would, I would still like to own. I mean, like I, I thought about, I've thought about picking it up a hundred times. I think it might be out of print now. I'm not sure, but either way, um, yeah, no, it's just, just good stuff. Good X-Men stuff. I'm glad that we finally got to do an X-Men book on this show. I mean, there'll be, there'll be more to come one day have oh to yeah have, have to have you back oh, yeah, at some for, point for man sure, for man. sure we, we talked about like <laughs> ultimate x-men like i never i never read that you want to talk I, about peaks and valleys oh man god. god damn uh, there's some there's some wacky shit in, in ultimate x-men but uh ultimate x-men though was also the um i i know that i said this is the first uh, x-men story i read and i think afterwards i did like um I hit the, the, the milestone ones. I hit like days of future past. I hit dark Phoenix saga just with like no context, like just like reading the stories. <laughs> and, and, and that's what really inspired me to be like, I have to read the Claremont stuff because I don't know half the shit they're talking about, like in these side plots and whatever else. But, um, ultimate X-Men was easier to get at the time. And so I actually started reading that like sequentially, like in the trades and whatnot. So that was technically like the first long form X-Men story I read. Um, but uh, there's a lot of fucking crazy shit. Yeah, that, that's one. I, that, that's one I'd like to get into at some point. Because yeah. like that was when I was starting to come back and read comics. But I was really reading more DC Batman stuff at the time because that was what Jim Lee was doing. Yeah, it's rad stuff. All right, man. Well, cool. Right uh, we'll go ahead and wrap this on up. Uh, thanks again for being on here, David. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me, like, man. Yeah, so we'll have to have you again for sure. It's it's fun to talk. Uh, I mean, like I love. um talking with like buddies and and whatnot about like people who just like uh don't really have the context but as you can tell i mean like we've run on like i feel like half this episode is just like us just going on tangents about like cool comic book <laughs> shit which i love uh, yeah so well there you have it everybody uh thanks for listening um, if you want to support this podcast please check out our patreon at patreon.com slash none of my friends like comics uh that way we can continue to provide you with even more great content it's never expected but always appreciate it follow the show on twitter at no comic friends for updates uh, or you can email the show with your comments opinions and thoughts at none of my friends like comics at gmail.com and if you mark it okay to air we'll read it on the air we just want to get the word out about the show so tell your friends and family who might be interested to give us a listen we are on anchor spotify apple Podcasts, google Podcasts, and stitcher thanks again for listening and we will see you on the next page see you <laughs>